Don't you find that it ain't easy? Wouldn't you love to see me dead? Your answer is to give me treatment for crying out when you can be paid. Oh, you're welcome, Neil. Hey, my volume is really down. then manufacturing descent since 1996 this is hell and i am back after a three show hiatus last week i was unable to make it in here because i was at the doctor's office trying to determine if i had pneumonia or not and right now i am on a regimen of antibiotics and at any point during the show if all of a sudden you hear dead air it's likely because i'm Addressing those antibiotics in a different room. On this week's Hell, we're going to get an update on Brazil's coup, which U.S. and Western media continue to deny. There will be a deep talk on art and money, their effect on one another, and why both may need to be abolished. We'll reveal a new revolutionary manifesto that will not sit well with liberals here in the U.S., Then we'll learn the importance of black radicalism and why it may be the only thing left that can save us. Jeff Dorton is back after our summer break, and Jeff will be delivering a moment of truth, which I'll be telling you about in a moment, and I'll share a travelogue of my blissful summer vacation far in the woods that was interrupted by the U.S. military-industrial complex. That's all during this week's live four-hour edition of This Is Hell. Our first guest this week is our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir, author of Voices of the Brazilian Left, which is a collection of interviews with Brazil's left, who are rarely, if ever, interviewed by, let alone mentioned in, the northern media. Brian is also an editor at Brazil Wire and a freelance writer and producer. That's BrazilWire.com. The UN has determined that the imprisoned former Brazilian President Lula da Silva, who's currently leading the polls for the upcoming presidential vote next month, has the right to not only talk to his political party and the media, but also has the right to run in October's election. Why not? Murderers are allowed to talk to the media and run for office while in jail awaiting appeal in Brazil. Why can't Lula? Well, you know why, if you heard our interview with Mark Weisbrot during our last live show earlier this month. And it has to do with the U.S. lawfare campaign that's rolling back Latin America's Pink Tide, which during the first decade of this century challenged U.S. dominance in the region. We'll talk to Brian about the coup. No U.S. or Western media outlet dare speak its name. When we hear from Brian, who now has his own weekly web TV show in Brazil for some big lefty news medium called Brazil 24-7. Now, there's been breaking news overnight about the Lula situation and a decision made by the Brazilian courts on whether he can run for office or not. And we'll be breaking that news with Brian in just a moment. 
Following our chat with Brian on the Brazilian coup, yes, I said it, Brazilian coup. I know the Western media doesn't like to say it, but I will. We'll have the return of organizer and educator Max Haven, author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Whether we like to admit it or not, art and money have a very, very close and intimate relationship with both thriving off the other. That relationship limits the ability for art to actually be a threat to money and the moneyed interests of capitalism, a capitalism that spreads like a virus, a cancer of capital that spreads and infects all aspects of our society and culture through financialization and the commodification of everything that defines neoliberalism. Want to know why our political imagination is limited? Why we think there is no alternative? It's because even our creativity and expressions have been ruined and its expressions have been ruined by capitalism. We'll discover how capital has affected art and art's impact on capital, as well as hear Max's argument for abolishing money and art. Don't worry, he's not against creative expression. After all, Max is assistant professor in Canada, research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University and director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. Max is also co-director of the Radical Imagination Project, and you can find out more about that project at RadicalImagination.org. So it's not like he's against creativity. This is Max's third appearance on This Is Hell, and you can hear our conversations with Max, one on reactionary authoritarianism and the other on the undercommoning at thisishell.com. After our discussion with Max on art's perverted relationship with money, But who am I to judge? We'll finally have the people on This Is Hell that everyone has wanted on This Is Hell, apparently, for a very long time. Our guests in the third hour of this week's This Is Hell will be Matt Christman and Brendan James, co-authors of The Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. Matt is a host of the podcast Chapo Trap House, while Brendan is a writer, musician, and former producer producer of the same show, and they want to share their revolutionary manifesto Manifesto with the world. Look, we all know this whole situation we're living in is pretty screwed up and we need change and we need it bad. So the Chapo crew has come up with an alternative and parts of it sound pretty awesome. All drugs are legalized and also become safe, healthy, and non-addictive. That's cool. Every single person involved in creating, promoting, and planning the Iraq war is pushed into a volcano. No, I'm not a big capital punishment fan, but, you know, I get it. And control of all media, newspapers, journalism, etc. is turned over to a mysterious Big Brother style figure known only as the beer nerd, and the official state religion is Chia Scientology. Okay, maybe they have some wrinkles to iron out, but we'll find out more about their manifesto when we explore it with Matt and Brendan, who wrote The Chapo Guide to Revolution with Felix Biederman, Will Menneker, and Virgil, Texas. We'll begin our fourth and final hour of this week's This Is Hell by speaking with sociologist Kalinda Andrews, author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. Kalinda developed Europe's first black studies undergraduate degree, and he believes that the very nature of capitalism is racist, and the only solution to racist capitalism is black radicalism. Yes, there is an alternative, after all, but without a vibrant radical movement, not only will we be unable to actually challenge racism, but we won't even be able to get the mild liberal reforms that could make things at least slightly and temporarily better. So from your radical friends, you're welcome, liberals. Kalinda is Associate Professor of Sociology in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University, Director of the Center for Critical Social Research, founder of the Harambee 
Organization of Black Unity and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. We'll wrap up this week's This Is Hell with a Moment of Truth, wherein Jeff Dorchin returns to do some racial thinking, which sounds like a hoot. And I'll tell you about my vacation up north. So on this week's show, an update on Brazil's coup, or is it Brazil's coups, as in plural by now, the sordid relationship between art and money and how we might need to get rid of both, a revolutionary manifesto that will not excite U.S. liberals, but what revolutionary manifesto does, black radicalism is the only way to stop capitalism before it stops us, Jeff does some racial thinking, and I'll tell you how my... Holiday was invaded by multinational forces. That stuff plus rotten history, listener feedback. Alex has been, we'll find out what Alex has been up to on social media over the last few weeks. Question from Hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Join me tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, for the closing of the second annual This Is Hell art show called This Is Art, which is happening tomorrow from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. 2251 West Devon, tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios. It's the closing of the second annual This Is Hell art show called This Is Art. Meet the artists who participated in this year's show and see all their work one last time tomorrow afternoon from 3 to 6 at the gallery above Carrie's Lounge, again, 2251 West Devon. This year's art included Luke Brecken's Wooden Assemblages, Ian Lance's Mixed Media Works, Julie Murphy's Etchings and Drawings, Laddie Odom's Handmade Kites Hanging from the Ceiling, Ron Pollard's We Kill Everything Photography, and the pornographic portraits of Vicky Jaguli, in that they are portraits of porn stars. That's tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios Art Gallery above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Check out our event page on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show host, Chuck Mertz, producing this week's This Is Hell is Alex Jerry and Leo O'Connell. Alex, first, what's new by you? Oh, I was wondering why some of those portraits seemed familiar. <laughs> oh, Alex, oh, that's so so just horrible. just kidding, just kidding, just kidding, everyone. Just kidding. <laughs> and Leo, what's new about you, sir? Anything uh, happened to you over the last few weeks that's worth uh, uh, sharing? I have just been uh, ripping through the uh, DVD collection at the local library and having a real fun time with it. What's the last thing you saw? Um, okay, the last good thing I saw was uh, like Someone in Love by Abbas Kiarostami. Very good. Highly recommend. Crazy. What library branch are you going to? Uh, mainly the Sulzer one, but also Albany Park. Both are equidistant. Yeah, and Sulzer's got a really great video collection. Yeah. Brave enough to be live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's Hangover Cure, by the way, Soldier Library, that's the one over by Wells Park for you who do not know over at Montrose and Lincoln Avenue. Alex, what's this week's Hangover Cure? This week's Hangover Cure is from a listener, Rick, who apparently was writing us from the Pierogi Festival in Whiting, Indiana the other week, and he wrote via Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio, I had no idea there was a Polish version of Menudo that is considered a hangover cure. Rick then sent a link to polishhousewife.com, <laughs> which is a frightening link to click on, and it takes you to what they claim is a triple hangover cure of flocky, or Polish tripe soup. Polish housewife writes, are we fans of flocky? The soup has a nice flavor, but I can't say I'd seek it out again. 
I'm just not a fan of tripe's texture, but if you are, this is a soup you'll love. Great flavor and the health benefits. Tripe is a good source of selenium and vitamin B12, but like other organ meats, it's high in cholesterol. So that makes this week's hangover cure. Thank you, Rick, at the Pierogi Fest in Whiting, Indiana. Polish tripe soup or flocky. I like how at early on in that description they say, I can't say that I'd seek it out again. I'm not a fan of tripe's texture. And then the very next thing it says, great flavor. <laughs> so I'm very confused by a Polish housewife, and I was very disappointed to find out what the PolishHousewife.com website really was. I had my hopes on something bigger and better. You are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Us Wrong. This is hell. Now, the last time I was with you a few weeks ago, I was preparing for my annual, my family's annual summer vacation at the lake, and I was explaining why no matter how hard you try, when you go on vacation, you can't get away from it all. You can't simply pretend that the rest of the world somehow miraculously pauses or disappears altogether, albeit temporarily while you self-quarantine from that real world on holiday. And that's probably a good thing, because if you could get away from it all, if you could somehow escape from reality, even if only for a little while, you'd likely become more tolerant of all our cultures and society's problems, as you would know that with the application of a simple vacation, you can be impervious to all our planet's ills. If you could do that, it would be far easier to become dismissive of all the life-threatening challenges we face on a daily basis. If you believe you can get away from poverty, violence, famine, and worldwide inequality, and the violence of poverty that causes inequality, which leads to famine, then you are a purposely oblivious, dehumanizing monster who lives in a dream world that becomes a nightmare reality for others, all because of you, you sick freak. On that happy note, I went on vacation. And while on vacation, at a large yet shallow northern lower peninsula of Michigan inland freshwater lake whose crashing waves seemed to drown out all the noise of the world, both the actual audio, the sound, but also the distractions of our lives which seem pointless as you float on the water. While on that vacation what you hope to find is peace, that peace that reverberates deep in your soul to a numbing hum that reminds you of what life is really all about. And right then was when, drifting on the water in 90-degree heat with my feet and ass feeling the cooling calm of that water, at that moment, I could with my eyes closed, soaking up the water in the sun, I could, I heard that distant rumbling of thunder, and the sun was out, so I thought it was odd, unless the devil was beating his wife, which is what you call a rainstorm during sunshine. And I try to mention that as often as possible because it's one of the weirdest phrases I've ever heard. So I opened my eyes to see not a cloud in the sky, but the thunder persisted, echoing like it was pounding some distant pine forest. It was like a rolling thunder. But it wasn't thunder. My peace was being interrupted by bombs, by war, by the largest National Guard training exercise in the United States called Operation Northern Strike, involving the U.S. military as well as armed forces from the United Kingdom, Canada, Denmark, Latvia, and Poland. It was dropping ordnance on Shell Cities, 25 miles away at Camp Grayling, also known as the Combined Arms Collective Training Facility, or Cactive, which somehow is supposed to sound better. And the shelling continued throughout my vacation every day. And every day, 
I would be fooled into thinking it was thunder, only to be horribly disappointed to discover that the wonderful sound of thunder that I enjoy so much was actually the echoes of future death. Another sunny afternoon, the thunder returned and I had heard it so often that I knew it was bombing practice, practice to kill, disrupting my vacation where I was supposed to get away from it all. And then it started raining. The devil was really beating his wife, or if you prefer, because it sounds maybe potentially offensive, a wolf was having its baby. But I first thought that the miraculous, magnificent sound of thunder was bombs participating in some audition of killing right in the middle of my vacation. And that wasn't the only way the military creeped into the background of my vacation, like a constant hum reminding me that I wasn't not only away from it all, but I was right in the thick of it. It seems that the Wurtsmith Air Force Base in Oscoda, essentially due east of Camp Grayling, and near the shore of Lake Huron, was in the midst of an investigation into toxic contaminants being in the base's groundwater and leaching out to nearby areas containing potentially cancer-causing pollutants and sending them out to their neighbors. The base has been closed for 25 years, which is frightening in itself because it suggests that closed military bases around the country could be posing severe hazardous risks to the communities they abandoned long ago. Then, as we were leaving the lake for the year, driving away, we were seemingly escorted by huge military helicopters as we took the highway away from the lake into what had, up to that point, been a serene pastoral landscape dotted with family farms. And it didn't stop there. As we approached Chicago, radio traffic reports warned of slow traffic and potential jams as millions of people were leaving the city's beaches. After watching the annual military promotion known as the Air and Water Show to the people who attend, and that time of year we're reminded of U.S. aerial bombing by the Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Laotians, whose neighborhood the fighter jets strafe with roaring practice maneuvers throughout the week leading up to the show. My vacation was also interrupted by the death of a true American lion, a hero whose roar has finally fallen short, who gave a voice to the weak and oppressed and fought for their country when their country needed them most, who stood up for the little guy and was the kind of person who demanded respect. Of course, I'm talking about Aretha Franklin. I'm certainly not talking about John McCain. He was a warmongering prick. And considering that in my attempt to get away from it all, I was constantly reminded of the U.S. war machine, which encroached upon my annual attempt at peacefulness, the war which is always around us when we stop and have the time to look around and pay attention. With that war always happening, it's no wonder a warmonger like John McCain would be celebrated after all. With this constant din and those screams like a deafening tinnitus with ambient shrieks of state-sanctioned violence and war ceaselessly programming us from afar, of course we'll celebrate a man of war. War is all around us all the time. We're comfortable with war. We revel in it. Even in those moments of peace, there's always war. So yes, this is hell. And this week's question from hell is, what will the final post made on this planet say? What will the final post made on this planet say? All replies get read on air during the third hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins a copy of the Chapo Guide to the Revolution that we'll be featuring in the third hour of this week's show. Again, the question from hell, what will the final post made on this planet say? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Listen during the third hour of this week's show to hear all the responses and to find out if you've won.
Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, an update on Brazil's coup, or is it coups now, as in plural? Art and money's perverted relationship, a revolutionary manifesto, our need for a black radicalism, and Jeff does some racial thinking. All that stuff, plus some rotten history, listener feedback. Alex will tell us what he's been up to on social media. Question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Alternative to alternative radio, independent from independent media. This is hell. There is a coup whose name U.S. and Western media dare not utter, here to get us caught up on Brazil's coup and everything happening in the run-up to next month's Brazilian presidential election. Our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Muir, author of Voices of the Brazilian Left, which is a collection of interviews with Brazil's left who are rarely, if ever, interviewed, let alone mentioned in the northern media. Welcome back to This is Hell, Brian. Hey, Chuck. How are you doing? Good. It's always great to hear your voice. Now, there has been some breaking news overnight about President Lula, but let's hold off on that for a little while. Let's tease people with that for a little while so we can get to the background leading up to the decision that has been made by Brazilian courts late last night. You've been seeing the far-right Jair Bolsonaro described as the leading candidate in Brazil's upcoming presidential election again next month. But you say that's not true. Why do you think the Western media is reporting Bolsonaro as the leading candidate? And who is the real leading candidate? Well, uh, I think that, first of all, it's not true because the leading candidate in all polls has consistently been Lula, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva who pro- promised to run for president from behind bars. Uh, he's in prison as a political prisoner right now. The United Nations Human Rights Committee issued an order to the Brazilian government to let Lula run for president, and it's legally binding according to the second optional protocol to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which Brazil adheres to. The U.S. doesn't, of course. Neither does Israel. But... Um, not only is Lula leading in the polls with a higher rate of support than all other candidates combined, and there's something like uh, 16 candidates, 14 candidates, um, there have been polls done that show anyone he supports, if he's barred from running, uh, will get an immediate 20 percentage point spike in, in popularity. So in all scenarios that include Lula, Lula's winning uh, in, uh, Lula has over twice the su- level of support of Jair Bolsonaro, and in polls that are made in which he's not running, whoever candidate he supports has more popularity than Jair Bolsonaro. So that's why it's misleading. And I think the reason that they're building Bolsonaro up so much in the American media right now is because they want to present this guy named Geraldo Alckman as the sensible moderate candidate despite the fact that he's got connections with Opus Dei, he ordered his military police to fire on teenage high school protesters with rubber bullets a couple years ago. He's alleged to have connections to the PCC cocaine trafficking mafia, and he's been involved in billions and billions of dollars of corruption scandals over the last 20 years as as two-time governor of Sao Paulo, vice governor of Sao Paulo. So let's say Geraldo Alckman does get the elect, does become elected. Let's just play on that hypothetical just for a moment. 
if there are all these corruption allegations against him, and we have seen Tamer, the current president, uh, Michelle Tamer, touched by corruption allegations. We have seen uh, Lula. He is in jail over uh, corruption allegations. We have seen Dilma Rousseff impeached over corruption allegations, even though she was never charged with a crime. What's the likelihood then that we're just going to see more corruption allegations and investigations if Geraldo Alckmin becomes the next president of Brazil? Zero, because his political party is untouchable with corruption allegations. It's the PSDB. This is the official party supported by the, not official, but everyone knows it's supported by the U.S. State Department. Okay. Like top officials from this party were up meeting with John Kerry the day after the coup negotiating. Um, All of the newspapers, American papers always support PSDB. And, um, you know, they're they're pretty much untouchable in, in corruption charges. So, I mean, uh, that's not. But but the reason why they're supported is because his presidency will re- uh, represent total continuity with the current government, and the current government has privatized hundreds of billions of dollars worth of petroleum to American multinationals. Um, it's opened up the country for a U.S. possible construction of U.S. military bases. It's uh, planning to privatize the second largest aquifer in the world. It's privatizing all of its national, natural resources right now. And so this is why international capital is very interested in having Alckman as uh, president. And if he doesn't make it, then their second choice seems to be Jair Bolsonaro, because he's been invited up to speak at the Americas Council, Council of the Americas, ESCOA. He's been invited to speak at U.S. universities basically normalizing his campaign up there. But I feel like they're trying to build this false dichotomy between two right-wing candidates that have identical economic platforms, Jair Bolsonaro and Geraldo Alckman, trying to make it seem like Bolsonaro is the, you know, the, na- the racist, neo-fascist candidate and Geraldo Alckman is a sensible administrator. But meanwhile... Uh, the PT party continues leading in the polls, even with or without Lula. It'll be, it'll, it'll at least make it to the second round, whoever candidate they put in, probably Fernando Haddad. And their platform is to undo the privatizations. So the real battle going on in Brazil is over the issue of petroleum privatizations and uh, labor labor reforms that were done that are insane. Like they've, they've transformed Brazil into a right to work country now. And uh, the PT party is, thre- is promising to undo all of these changes that have happened since the coup. So this is the real electoral battle. It's not really about Lula. It's about two competing visions for, for government, for program of government. Uh, the right candidates are on one side, the left are on the other side. So Bolsonaro and Alckmin basically have the same platform in that respect. So what does the U.S. and what does the Western media, what is the northern media, if you will, what do they miss in their understanding of what is happening right now within Brazilian politics and in the run-up to the Brazilian vote? When they see the major uh, issue of the election being corruption and not privatization? Well, uh, what they're doing then is they're helping, you know, de facto. It's, it's a censorship by omission that favors privatization. 
obviously. And that's the that's favored by the big corporate newspapers and their corporate advertisers, privatization. So, so but in ignoring the real campaign issue, they favor the the side that's in power right now. They favor this massive natural resources grab for international capital and the decimation of worker rights and other social uh, rights here in Brazil. Uh, this week, the Associated Press, let's get to Bolsonaro again just for a second. Uh, this week, the Associated Press reported a leading candidate in Brazil's presidential election said police should be given license to kill criminals, and those who do should receive medals, not face prosecution. Hard right candidate Jair Bolsonaro said in an interview Tuesday night that he would, quote, leave good people out of the range of the shooting and go at criminals full steam. On TV's uh, TV Globo's main nightly news program, Bolsonaro said, these kind of people, criminals, you cannot treat them as if they were normal human beings, okay? We can't let policemen keep dying at the hands of these guys. If he kills 10, 15, or 20 with 10 or 30 bullets each, he needs to get a medal and not be prosecuted. Bolsonaro has also spoken positively of the 1964 to 1985 military dictatorship. How do you fear Brazil would change under Bolsonaro? Look, I, in a way, I feel like it's not even worth talking that much about him because he gets so much press as it is. It all, it's almost like this um, friend-of-me press, like the, like the American media did with Donald Trump during the Trump campaign. Look at this outrageous thing Bolsonaro said. Look at this outrageous thing Trump said. You know, so I, I don't feel like First of all, will, will that change the way that police act? No, police already have a license to kill in Brazil. So regarding that individual point, but I don't, I don't think he deserves that this much mention in media right now. He's polling at 17% support nationally right now. And unlike the U.S., where, an, you know, where a racist can get up there and say all kinds of racist comments and be cheered and elected by a majority white electorate, Brazil is 53% Afro-Brazilian, you know, and this is a guy who said a lot of racist things about black people. So the, the electoral dynamic here is different than it is in the United States. You know, I seriously doubt that more than about 10% of the Afro-Brazilian population would vote for this guy. You know, he's a distant second in the polls as of, you know, as of the last round of polls. So I feel in a way that his his candidacy is being built up by the media with, these, with this kind of coverage. Are there attempts by the right to disenfranchise Afro-Brazilians in order to make it more difficult for them to vote, even though they make up 53% of the Brazilian population? Well, like, uh, like, any, you know, like any capitalist democracy like the U.S., they try to... Uh, there are candidates, you know, who who try to um, create a climate of low voter turnout as an electoral strategy. It's the Chicago Democratic Party's strategy, you know, has been since the first daily years. But in Brazil, everybody is legally required to vote. So you have, if you don't vote, you have to pay a very small fee unless you can justify why you didn't vote, which is like, I was out of town because you have to vote in your district. You know, so uh, voter turnout is usually a lot higher in Brazil than it is in the U.S. It le- in the last elections, it was like 70% or something like that. 
so that you know the dynamics a little bit different. You know, so I, I don't think it's as active a strategy as it is in the U.S. Do you think it's a bad idea to make it a legal obligation to vote? Because there's this video that's going around social media right now, and it's a dramatized version of a guy being chased down the street, down alleys by what appears to be like a London Bobby, who is chasing him down the street uh, because he has not voted, as if he is going to be arrested and detained for not voting. And so it kind of paints this picture of a police state forcing people to be participating within democracy. So how do you feel about the idea of making it a legal obligation in Brazil to vote? I think it's a fantastic idea. Now, first of all, you don't have to vote for anybody. If you if you don't want to vote, you just have to show up then that day. You have a day off of work anyway for it, right? You just have to show up and you can vote. You can cast a white ballot, which means you vote for nobody. And if over something like 30%, no, 40% of the ballots are cast white, they have to hold another election. So they're not making you vote. They're making you appear somewhere on that day and go through a bureaucratic process. And, you know, I, I'm confident that one of the reasons that the left won four consecutive election, presidential elections in Brazil and was only forced out of office by a coup is because a much higher percentage of poor people are voting down here. So I, if, it, if it were done in the U.S., Imagine how judiciary elections would change. You know, if people had to shove and vote for judges. You, you, have these, you have these elections. I have a buddy who ran for alderman in Chicago on the northwest side, and the day of his election, they only had like 12% voter turnout. You know, so I, I think it's actually a really good idea. So um, how, you know, we were talking about Jerry Bolsonaro. I know you don't want to... Uh pump him up, uh, hype him up any more than he might already be. And we don't want to turn him into another Trump. But that's one of the things I've noticed in the Western media is that Bolsonaro keeps being referred to. And I know this is lazy comparison and lazy journalism, but they keep re- referring to Bolsonaro as Brazil's Trump. Is that a fair or accurate comparison? And more importantly, how do you feel about those kinds of comparisons that are made often in the U.S. media about this person is France's Bernie Sanders or this person is England's Trump? Yeah, it's just something to generate clicks, I think. But in the case of Bolsonaro, now he's positively compared himself with Trump, but he's not Brazil's Trump. Brazil's Trump was planning on running for president, but now he's running for governor of Sao Paulo. His name is João Doria. He's a, a right-wing guy from Geraldo Alckmin's PSDB party, who is a millionaire and reality TV personality who was the star of Brazil's franchise of Trump's Apprentice show. You know, and he, he, make, he acts exactly like Trump. You know, he's, re- he's really into branding himself, and making controversial comments. And that guy is obviously Brazil's Trump. Uh, the main difference between Bolsonaro and Trump is that Bolsonaro was actually in the military, you know, and he's not a multimillionaire. You know, so I don't, I don't think the only thing that he has in common with Trump is they're both racists. So how much better off would uh, Brazil be with Alckmin as president, with the PDSB candidate that you, you believe that the United States is going to say is a good alternative to the far-right Jair Bolsonaro, how much better off would Brazil be under a leadership of Alckmin compared to a leadership of Bolsonaro? Well, um, 
there would be almost no difference whatsoever in terms of labor rights, macroeconomic policy. Uh, foreign companies would continue having this field day buying off all of Brazil's natural resources at below market rates, you know. Uh, so there'd be almost no change in the way the country was managed. It would be, in fact, if he took office, the same political parties that are currently connected with Alckmin would immediately jump into his coalition. And it would be almost the same people running the, you know, the economy and the, the different ministries. Uh, the question of the police, it's not related to the uh, president. And this is something that uh, a lot of foreign journalists got wrong during the World Cup and Olympics when they were blaming Dilma Rousseff for police violence. The state governors control the police. And the police, you know, uh, are already killing criminals indiscriminately and never getting punished for it. I think maybe if Bolsonaro took office, there would be a kind of wave of fascist violence against leftists. You know, Bolsonaro calls anybody who's center-left a communist. And uh, some of his fans have already been attacking members of the PT party, which is essentially a social democratic party. It's not that far left. Um, but, you know, calling them communists, threatening um, another presidential candidate from the left party, PSOL, Guilherme Bulos. His campaign was threatened by Bolsonaro fans with guns earlier this week. So I think, I think if Bolsonaro is elected, just like when Trump was elected, elected in the U.S., there's going to be a rise in, like, fascist mob violence. Uh, the economic policies will remain the same. We are speaking to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Mir. Brian now has his own weekly web TV show in Brazil for some big lefty news medium called Brazil 24-7. You can find out more about that by, I guess, going to Brazil Wire or going to Brazil 24-7, looking it up online. Uh, so, uh, as Agence France Press reported late last week, uh, the UN Human Rights Committee ruled on Friday, August 24th, that Brazil's imprisoned leftist leader, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, cannot be disqualified from upcoming presidential elections because his legal appeals are ongoing. In a statement, the panel requested Brazil to take all necessary measures to ensure that Lula can enjoy and exercise his political rights while in prison as a candidate in the 2018 presidential elections. The committee said Lula cannot be barred as a candidate until his appeals before the courts have been completed in fair judicial proceedings. And they reported that the UN committee monitors a member state's compliance with the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, as well as a supplementary text called the Optional Protocol. Because Brazil has ratified both texts, it is tex technically obligated to abide by the committee's findings. So what they decided was that uh, Lula should be immediately freed from jail, that he be granted access to the media and his political party, and that he be allowed to run on, or they didn't decide that, that he should be allowed to run in the election. The, uh, he, they agreed on all those points except for him being freed from jail. So they wanted him to have contact with his, uh, the media and his political party and be allowed to run for election. So before we get into what the Brazilian courts have decided, and for those who do not remember, why is Lula in jail? Okay, well, um, first of all, let me point out the irony that The Guardian would run an article by the French press agency 
explaining this situation because their own writers about <laughs> Brazil are so anti-PT and anti-Lula, you know, uh, that they couldn't have any of their own people say this, okay? Um, Lula's in, you know, Lula's in jail for committing indeterminate acts related to a apartment which was overvalued by prosecutors at $600,000. It's clearly not worth that amount of money. But he never, the prosecutors were unable to prove that he ever owned or set foot in. And it's relevant to mention here that the prosecutor was the judge who ruled on his own prosecution after he'd written a book about it and was going on the lecture circuit, met bad-mouthing Lula, whose wife worked for a PSDB party uh, governor's office for several years as legal counsel, Betohish and Parana. So uh, it's widely considered to be you know, charges that were just... And, and then when you compare these charges to what people in the office and who are being allowed to run have committed, you know, with mountains of evidence, including bank accounts, video and audio tape, including like uh, uh, Ercio Neves was caught on audio threatening to kill a witness in a corruption case against him and millions of dollars of personal enrichment. He's running for Congress. Um, Anthony Garocino is running for governor of Rio de Janeiro right now. He's been in jail twice. He was, he's been arrested for... Um, forming an organized crime unit with illegal gambling mafia and buying votes and all kinds of stuff. And the Supreme Court just stepped in and canceled the electoral court ruling against him until after the elections. And so you see that there's people with, you know, standing President Michel Temer has been implicated in something like $80 million of personal enrichment for him and his, what the courts call organized crime group that he created, and he's the standing president. So the charges against Lula are very small, even if he had committed them, took place after he was president, so there's no way they could prove conflict of interest. Uh, and even if, the, you know, even if there, let's say there was a conflict of interest, he actually did receive an apartment, and it happened while he was president. There's no proof that actually happened. But even if that did happen, these are very minor charges compared to what a lot, lot of the leading candidates are under investigation for. You know, 3.5 billion U.S. dollars disappeared in the Sao Paulo train system uh, in, a, in a scandal that was announced by Siemens, the German multinational, against Geraldo Alckmin and his government. And this case was just buried in the courts. You know, so the, the case against Lula is very small, but there's no, there's no material evidence. And they weren't even able to accuse him of anything specific. He's in jail for committing undetermined acts. You know, so it's a, it's a farce. You know, um, the AFL-CIO has uh, released a public statement calling Lula political prisoner. Various ex-presidents around the world, like Francois Hollande and Michel Bachelet, uh, Sabatero, they're all calling Lula political prisoner. Uh, noted intellectuals like Angela Davis, Noam Chomsky have signed letters demanding the Brazilian government to release Lula. So it's just, it's just, it all comes down to these two projects for government. You know, the cat, international capital is worried that someone will get back in power in Brazil who will undo all of the privatizations and austerity cuts. So now a decision was made last night on whether Lula can 
leave his imprisonment and whether Lula can run for president next month. Uh, what was the decision that was made? Okay, I, for, I forgot to say the second point to your last question, but I'll, the decision was that Lula cannot run for office, okay? And this is, uh, this is in violation of the second optional protocol of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights by the UN. But unlike, I know, like I talked to a lot of Americans and stuff, and they're like, well, screw the UN, no one ever listens to them anyway. The difference is between Brazil and the U.S. First of all, the U.S. never signed this kind of protocol. But secondly, in 2009, Brazilian Congress passed a law uh, saying that all decisions made by the U.N. Human Rights Committee are legally binding in Brazil. This is M law MP311 from 2009, which means that even if the, the electoral courts were ignoring an international treaty who cares? It's the UN. They're actually breaking Brazilian law in this decision. It's not just international law. So they they actually committed a crime yesterday when they when they gave this ruling. So uh, we went back and forth online, and I mentioned how the Kirshners, Nestor and Katrina, the husband and wife who served as uh, Argentina's left-leaning presidents in consecutive terms during the 2000s and are the target of a corruption uh, probe, which seems to happen wherever there was any potentially socialist but definitely anti-right-wing political party or politician being elected during the last decade, which were all part of the so-called pink tide of socialism that was challenging U.S. dominance in the region and U.S. support for the far right, which often constituted military dictatorship support in Latin America's history by the U.S. And now this is happening in Chile against Michelle Bachelet as well with an investigation into corruption, uh, corruption allegations against her. So uh, the first question is kind of facetious. Why did all the left-wing socialist alternatives in Latin America turn out to be corrupt? But the second part of it, Brian, is uh, what impact has this kind of lawfare had on any dissent in Latin America? Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's not just Christina Kirshner and Michelle Bachelet. Michelle Bachelet, by the way, is being tied up in the same investigation that's a cooperative effort with the U.S. Department of Justice, Operation Car Wash, involving Odebrecht Construction Party uh, Company, which was used to arrest Lula. Uh, there's now been eight current or former Latin American presidents who've been tied up in the Operation Car Wash corruption investigation, which is selectively choosing its targets, not even based on this idea of left or right, based on this idea of sovereignty, sovereignty and autonomy for countries. I mean, sometimes you have even center-right leaders who believe in protecting um, national industry and national mineral resources. Even the neo-fascist dictator Augusto Pinochet refused to privatize Chile's copper industry, which is the nation's biggest industry there. So it's really a question of which presidents are op or candidates want to open up all of their nation's national resources and, uh, and open up free trade, stop subsidizing na national industrial production so that uh, international capitalist community can engage in predatory activities against people who want to implement some kind of Keynesian protective measures against that from happening. That's what it's really about. It's not even... It's not even that much of a left and right issue anymore. 
So, yeah, uh, I believe that the entire continent has taken a major hit in the last six or seven years from these kind of lawfare investigations because the language used is so complicated, the legal language, and um, it plays into stereotypes that Americans and Europeans already have about Latin America. You know, oh, they're just a bunch of corrupt populists or whatever. You know, so it's it's been a pretty hard hit. And um, luckily, you know, Obrador was elected in Mexico. Um, Macri's popula uh, popularity is falling in Argentina. So there's going to be some kind of hit back against this rollback. And hopefully in Brazil, this will be done by Fernando Haddad being elected president in, in October. You know? Let's get to that about Haddad just for a second, because one of the things that uh, people have been saying is that what would happen if he if uh, Lula was not able to run, as it appears he will not be able to be to run, is that uh, Haddad will take his position and that he would then win. And now the cr current uh, criminal justice system is looking into Haddad for uh, potential uh Corruption, as Brazil Wire reported, with Lula jailed, the Workers Party vice president presidential candidate, and would be substitute Fernando Haddad is now being bombarded with legal actions from the stronghold of political arch enemies, the PSDB. Can Brazil's right just keep going after one after another after another Workers Party member, so the Workers Party just will not be able to win the October election, or even possibly have a candidate running? Well, this is what they've been doing since 2005, when there was this fabricate, this scandal fabricated by the media called the Mensalão, which enabled them to arrest some of the top leaders of the PT party with no material evidence. You know, again, so the PT has been under attack since 2005, which ironically has transformed them into the least corrupt of the major political parties because they know that anything they do will have a much higher level of scrutiny than any other party in the country. So Haddad was mayor of Sao Paulo for four years. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the best, I wrote an article at the time, it was the most radical left big city government in history. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a decent mayor. And, um, you know, so they've, they're trying to tie him up on corruption charges. They would have to really operate outside of the law to be able to cancel his candidacy before October, because these charges normally last for years and years. But, you know, it's what we're worried about now. You know, they, tr they tried to arrest the PT party president, Glazy Hoffman, for, um, because they thought she would be the candidate. And the Supreme Court threw out all charges against her. Once again, it was, it was the same judge who went after Lula, once again, there was no material evidence. It was entirely based on one plea bargain testimony from someone who was like trying to bargain his way out of jail. And it was all dismissed. So, yeah, I mean, this is our worry. Uh, and I think that to guarantee that this doesn't happen, there just has to be a lot of pressure on the streets from the unions and the social movements. You know, the day they went to register Lula's candidacy in Brasilia, 50,000 people showed up to surround the electoral courts on that day. So I feel like there's going to be some more protests coming up and hopefully that will enable. And, and the other thing that's happening behind the scenes is that Haddad is negotiating with the International Finance Committee, uh, Community. You know, 
And I think he's trying to do the same kind of thing that Lula did in 2002. He's saying, look, I'm, it's not going to be a radical left administration. You know, it's going to be a pro-capitalist government that has strong social programs. We're going to maintain neoliberal macroeconomic policies like Lula did, blah, blah, blah. And it's, you know, it's a little bit frustrating, but I feel like if he's elected, he won't be as left wing as Lula would have been, but still by far the best option for undoing all of the damage that's been done to Brazilian society since the coup, which happened exactly two years ago yesterday on the same day that they canceled Lula's candidacy. And a bit of reminder to everyone down here that we're living in a state of exception. Just a couple more questions for you, Brian. You posted a couple of weeks ago on Facebook how Facebook has once again removed Telesur English. Please share Telesur's news stories and fight Facebook's censorship. Bring back Telesur English. That's hashtag bring back Telesur English. Why do you think Facebook is blocking Telesur English and what does it offer that you don't see from other media outlets that are uh, covering Brazil? Well, uh, what Telesur offers is that it's not corporate funded like the New York Times and The Guardian are. So it doesn't represent the interests of multinational corporations in Latin America, right? It is, you know, run by a coalition of left-wing governments. Venezuela, Cuba, Argentina participated until Macri was elected. Ecuador participated until their Trojan horse fake left candidate, Lenin Moreno, was elected, you know. But it, it represents different governments. And so, like, when you read it, you have to read between the lines. Just, just like when you're reading RT. RT provides great coverage on the United States. Now, if you're reading an RT article about the Ukraine or Chechnya, you've got to know this is somehow connected to Russia's you know, geopolitical interest, but its coverage on areas outside of that is really good. And um, I feel like Telesur provided the best coverage on a lot of issues in Latin America and English. It still, it still does. You know, so the reason it was pulled off of Facebook, I believe, is because Venezuela has the world's largest oil reserves. The U.S. is building up for some kind of military action against Venezuela right now. So it pulled Telesur English off. Uh, Telso English was pulled off Facebook. Venezuela Analysis was pulled off Facebook. Venezuela Analysis is kind of like, I kind of like to say that Brazil Wire is like the Venezuela Analysis of Brazil, you know, because it's just a couple people voluntarily uh, providing good analysis in English and news about, about the situation. You know, my co-editor was on a panel in Liverpool a couple months ago with the editor of Venezuela Analysis. We have a lot of respect for them. And we've now been barred from uh, promoting posts on Facebook, you know, so we feel like Brazil wire might be next, you know, depending on how this plays out in the next month and a half, two months with the elections. Uh, I've only got uh, time for one more question. I was going to ask you about some of the posts you've been uh, posting or putting up about uh, John McCain and his passing, because I think there's something that the uh, Democratic Party, people in the Democratic Party who are celebrating McCain as a sign of bipartisan unity are missing about his legacy, about his legacy when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to war. But instead, uh, on Facebook, you quoted uh, Geneval Rabelo, author of Foreign Capital in the Brazilian Press, talking about how Brazilian and international journalists avoided criticizing the military dictatorship. And you're right how the same could be said today about the foreign correspondents who avoid saying the word coup 
without qualifying it, it, it as a minority opinion and who avoid referring to Lula as a political prisoner. Rabelo, you quote, saying this is the sad choice to swim against the current, standing firm on a legacy of convictions or to leave your, ourselves at the mercy of the current, fattening ourselves like pigs for who knows the inexorable sacrifices of the great feast of the conquerors. Our foreign correspondents today, in your opinion, in Brazil, setting the tables for a great feast by conquerors from the U.S. and the West. Yeah, exactly. But, I mean, it's sad, it's sad, you know, because journalism, I feel, is like, you know, dying anyway. But if you want to make it as a journalist, I posted something about this. Like, if you want to make it as a journalist, an Anglo journalist writing about Brazil, you can't talk about the unions. You know, you can't use the word coup. Uh, you can't talk about the United Nations or anything. There's certain subjects. Like, we, we've heard all kinds of stuff informally. Like, you know, after 2016, some press agencies, big ones like Reuters and AP and whatever, they were, like, banning their writers from using the word coup on their so- per- personal social media accounts. So, like, you got to toe the line if you want to scrape by on... $35,000 a year as a freelance foreign correspondent in Brazil. And this involves making a lot of sacrifices of your personal integrity. I feel like all these guys know what's really going on down here. And they're just lying uh, so that they can have the status and the, the money to maintain their bourgeois lifestyles down here at the service of international capital. Brian, I really appreciate you being our correspondent in Brazil because you give us the news that we're definitely not getting here in the United States. Uh, The way in which, for instance, the Bachelet corruption scandal is being reported in the New York Times is just incredible. Once you hear the reports that you give here on our show, once you read Brazil Wire, once you read Telesur English, if you can, uh, you get a definitely a different perspective than what we're getting here in the United States. So I really appreciate it, Brian. That's one of the reasons that we try to have correspondents like you on our show to get around all of the flotsam and jetsam that is forced on us and imposed upon us by the U.S. establishment media. So thank you so much for being part of our show, and we'll be talking to you soon. I'll be talking to you throughout next month because of the elections. Uh, the elections start on October 7th and go through October 28th. So how do these work? Are there several rounds of elections? How does that work? Yeah, there's two rounds. Uh, If a candidate gets over 40% in the first round, there's no second round. So, uh, but normally they go to the second round and the second round is October 28th. Okay. All right. So we'll be talking to you next month. We're looking forward to having you back on the show and uh, yeah, we'll see what happens as these events uh, unveil themselves over the next few months. All right, man. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take it easy, Chuck. Live from the nightmare of want, this is hell, art, and money have a weird, even at times parasitic relationship with each other, kind of codependence that we'd rather not realize or admit, and their impact on each other in this era of neoliberalism is greater than ever. We'll find out more when we talk to organizer and educator Max Haven 
author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Get the That Was Hell email newsletter free every Monday. Go to thisishell.com. Sign up now. This is hell in your inbox. Every Monday morning, sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter. Start every week listening to This Is Hell. Maybe you're enjoying your favorite beverage in your new This Is Hell coffee mug or you're browsing through a book we gave you for dropping by This Is Hell office hours on Wednesday night. And suddenly you click on your inbox. And just like that, you've got links to this week's entire This Is Hell at the separate all the separate interviews and correspondence reports organized and ready for your listening and sharing pleasure. Sign up for the That Was Hell email newsletter at thisishell.com and start your week by listening to and sharing This Is Hell. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. In 1894, 124 years ago, more than 400 people were killed in a firestorm that resulted when two separate forest fires merged in the lumber country around Hinkley, Minnesota, at the end of an unusually hot and dry summer. Forest fires in lumber country. Sounds like karma at best at worst. Self-immolation by trees protesting their mass slaughter. In those days, it was common for loggers to strip trees of their branches before cutting them down. Perverts. It was a practice that covered the forest floor with chunks of dead wood and flammable tinder in areas where steam locomotives regularly passed through, spewing red-hot coal cinders from their smokestacks. You know, back in the day when there was none of that pesky government interference with business doing business. In the Hinkley firestorm, powerful convection currents sucked up so much oxygen that many victims died by suffocation, proving capitalism can actually create a vacuum. In just four hours, some 300,000 acres of pine forests were destroyed. And if you're spatially challenged like me, 300,000 acres is 468.75 square miles, or almost exactly twice the size of the city of Chicago. So that's a lot of burnt wood. A few hundred people managed to survive the blaze by taking shelter in a gravel pit and a muddy lake. But their livelihood, the local lumber industry, was completely wiped out. And though an effort was made to rebuild the town of Hinkley, it would never regain its former economic importance. And to this day, if you go into the forest around Hinkley, Minnesota, on a still night, if you listen closely, you can hear the trees whispering, Trees one. Hinkley Zero. In Rotten History 1914, 104 years ago, the world's last known passenger pigeon was found dead on the floor of her cage at the Cincinnati Zoo, possibly from an overdose of suet in room temperature tap water. Known by the name Martha, although Martha secretly hated that name according to her autobiography, she was about 29 years old, the last survivor of years of failed breeding attempts by ornithologists in Cincinnati and at the University of Chicago. I mean, you try to breed with an ornithologist. It's a very difficult thing to do. Those binoculars are always getting in the way. Martha had never in her life laid a fertile egg, and the last male passenger pigeon had died four years earlier from a suspected fail murder-suicide pact with Martha, which she didn't go through with. For thousands of years before the arrival of European settlers, Passenger pigeons had been the most abundant bird species in North America and perhaps the world, numbering more than three, or numbering between uh, three to five billion at their peak. In 1813, the naturalist John James Audubon described seeing migrating flocks that numbered in the millions so vast that they blackened the sky and took hours or even days to pass overhead. And keep in mind, that's only a hundred years before Martha died and passenger pigeons went extinct. 
Frontier settlers found they could easily bring the pigeons down just by shooting into the sky without bothering to aim or by using torches that smoked them out of the trees in which they nested. Some settlers used the bird as a source of cheap food, while others killed them for fun, leaving them on the ground to rot, which was what people in the United States apparently did back then for entertainment in the 19th century. Kill an animal, let it lay around and rot. It was really a lot of fun. In the mid to late 19th century, passenger pigeons were the target of uncontrolled commercial hunting that drastically reduced their numbers. Meanwhile, the timber industry decimated the forests of the eastern United States, depriving the pigeons of their favorite breeding habitat. By the time their population declined, de decline became obvious, it was too late to save these species. And after Martha's death, death the passenger pigeon was declared extinct. In more recent years, the Harvard University biologist E.O. Wilson has estimated that humans are driving some 30,000 species to extinction every year. And extinction is about as rotten as history can get. That's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Join me tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, for the closing of the second annual This Is Hell art show called This Is Art, which is happening again tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. This year's art included Luke Brecken's wooden assemblages, Ian Lance's mixed media works, Julie Murphy's etchings and drawings, Laddie Odom's handmade kites hanging from the ceiling, Ron Pollard's We Kill Everything photography project, and the pornographic portraiture of Vicky Jaguli. That's tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios Art Gallery, above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Check out our event page on Facebook at facebook.com slash this is hell radio. You can rate this is hell on Facebook. And uh, 181 people have responded so far. And we have, after 181 ratings, a five out of five star rating from our Facebook. Uh, friends. Our most recent five-star rating comes from Gregory, who writes, A week into listening, rinsing the back catalog and also the Patreon selections. Wish I'd been listening since the first broadcast of This Is Hell, a wide range of interviewees, topics, and incisive questions. A must listen. So thank you, Gregory. And you can rate This Is Hell and leave a comment about us at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. If you do leave a comment, We'll read yours on the air. This week's question from hell is, what will the final post made on this planet say? What will the final post made on this planet say? All replies read on air during the next hour of this week's This Is Hell. Our favorite wins the Chapo Guide to Revolution, which we'll be featuring in the next hour of This Is Hell. Again, the question from hell is, what will the final post made on this planet say? Leave your responses now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, and find out during the next hour if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Art and Money's per Inverted relationship, a revolutionary manifesto, our need for black radicalism, and Jeff does some racial thinking. All that plus listener feedback, what Alex has been up to on social media, question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the planet where we know the price of everything and the value of nothing. 
This is hell. Art and money have had a long and sordid relationship, and arguably art and capitalism need each other to survive. So what can we do to challenge the system in an era of art after money and money after art? Here to tell us, organizer and educator Max Haven is author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Max. It's great to be back. Max has been on our show a couple of times in the past. Uh, one time he was on to talk about, uh, let's see, undercommoning. Another time he was on to talk about uh, reactionary authoritarianism. That was back in 2016 and 2017. You can find all those interviews at our website, thisishell.com. And you can follow Max on Twitter at Max Haven. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. And go to his website at maxhaven.com. You write money and art as they exist under capitalism must be abolished along with that economic system. What is wrong with art under capitalism? What does capitalism do to art that makes art wrong? Well, I think there's two uh, aspects to that question or two answers that I give you. The first is that I think especially over the last 20 or 30 years of capitalism and it's what we call the financialized phase, where, you know, finance capital and speculative money has risen to prominence in the capitalist economy, art itself has become financialized. So now there are a lot of firms and a lot of companies and a lot of individuals who are very interested in using art as a speculative asset, something that you invest in to get a higher return later, with very little concern for its aesthetic value, for its contribution to culture and society. Um, so on the one hand, art, like everything else in our society, has been turned into sort of the plaything of the plutocrat. But I think in this book, I'm trying to say that there's a deeper problem here, too, which is that under capitalism, the fundamental sort of what we would talk about as a creative or imaginative impulse of our species has really been progressively reoriented towards the generation of profit and towards corporate power. So art, on the one hand, is like those expensive objects we see in big museums. Those have become financial assets, but at a much more profound level, even on the level of daily life for most of us who don't consider ourselves artists, uh, our artistic impulse and our artistic skills and talents and passions have also been commodified, financialized, and instrumentalized. So um, is that financialization of art new? Because I am certain that I'm going to get an email from somebody who says, this is no different than when the de' Medici's or the Borgias or the Catholic Church mm-hmm. were the biggest art patrons in the world. So how is the financialization of art anything new, anything different from what it was in the past? Hasn't it always reflected what the people who have the most money want? Yes, absolutely. As long as there's been a thing we call art, which is actually a very recent human invention as a, as a term. I mean, the creative impulse is, of course, been with us since uh, we evolved into what we now understand to be humans. But ever since there's been this distinct category that we call art, that usually we associate with sort of romantic men drinking themselves to death in Paris, that has always been a plaything of the ruling class. But what has changed is that the ruling class has changed. So, of course, in medieval and Renaissance Italy, as, as you mentioned, that ruling class was a very tight uh, uh, group of religious and economic and political elites who wanted to art to do certain things for them. Um, specifically, they wanted it to glorify their worldview, 
They wanted it to tell a story about how their their rule over the rest of society was legitimate, and they wanted it to ornament their mansions and houses that they had bought with their sort of ill-begotten wealth. Well, that hasn't changed fundamentally. That is still what the ruling class today wants, but the ruling class is very different today than it was in Renaissance Italy. Today, the ruling class is globalized. They uh, make money not necessarily through sort of mercantilist mechanisms or through exploiting peasantry, although that is still part of the capitalist system. They increasingly make money through speculation and through extraction and through the exploitation of labor. Uh, And so this ruling class is much more global. It's much more cosmopolitan in its tastes and its desires. And what it wants from art is very different. They're not as interested in sort of conservative depictions of how wonderful the world is under their care. They're actually more interested in provocative art. They're interested in edgy art. They're interested in art that pushes boundaries, because in fact, that's what the ruling class today thinks they are doing. You know, the financiers of Wall Street or the city of London or Shanghai or Frankfurt, they believe that like artists, they're bringing their creativity into the world and manifesting their will as, you know, the sort of image of the romantic artist we have. And of course, the difference is that an artist, if they make some mistake, you get a kind of ugly canvas. When these capitalists make a mistake, you get global warming, nuclear war, and you know, reactionary authoritarian government. Under neoliberalism, we have this celebration of the individual and this dismissal, if not derision, of anything that is a collective notion or a collective response to anything. How much mm. is the ruling class today... Uh, under neoliberalism, under financialization, under the state of capitalism that we are currently living in, how much is the ruling class today more individualized and not thinking in more of a collective nature and that because of neoliberalism, and that leads to them making decisions that are different from their predecessors who were the economic elites of capitalism at their time? Now, that's a very good question. Um, I think to a very large extent today's ruling class is uh, defined by their access to money rather than, rather than, as it was in the past, their family connections and their kind of class unity. Uh, and that leads to a number of deeply morbid systems within the capitalist system. One of them is that they don't often realize that um, one of the central contradictions of capitalism is that though in order to move forward, in order to accumulate wealth in the hands of capitalists, capitalists must compete with one another. Uh, That is a fundamental feature of the system. At various times, they have to cooperate. And those times are typically when there's an economic crisis. And for instance, as J.P. Morgan did, you know, almost 100 years ago now, literally called together the biggest financiers in New York City and insisted that they all make a collective sacrifice for the good of their class, or else there would be a massive economic crisis, as there was a little later in the Great Depression, as you know, in the Great Crash that led to the Great Depression. Uh, But that if they didn't make this sacrifice together for their common good, the system would crash and the masses would rise up. Um, And that's kind of a part of the defense mechanism of capitalism. But today's capitalists are both so globalized and so individualist in their understanding, they can't even necessarily figure out how to take that kind of class leadership. And for the rest of us, that's both a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing because if they can't take leadership and they can't cooperate, it would make it easier for social movement uh, of the non-ruling class to challenge their power and make a more egalitarian, equal, and peaceful society. 
Unfortunately, in the absence of massive social movements that could take advantage of this opportunity, what happens is you get individual capitalists and factions of capitalism, both international factions and within nations, fighting against each other. And as you might imagine, they're not necessarily paying the price for that fight. So all of the trade wars that we're seeing, all of the international saber-rattling and contests between Chinese capitalism and American capitalism and European capitalism and Russian capitalism, these, you know, threaten to escalate into actual warfare uh, and into very serious consequences, economically speaking, for everyone on the planet. So uh, capitalists increasingly have this very individualist view, which prevents them from actually realizing that the system is ultimately suicidal. Wow, that's fascinating. So, uh, as I was saying earlier, you know, you write how money and art, uh, as they exist under capitalism, must be abolished. And I asked, what is wrong with art under capitalism? So, conversely, what negative impact can art have on money? Well, there's two ways of answering that question. One of them is the negative impact that is maybe uh, not a good thing. And the second is the type of negative impact that is a good thing. So not a good thing. I would say the negative impact of art on money is a little more um, poetic. And we have to go back to an earlier notion of art and the imagination from, again, the Renaissance or early modern capitalism, where terms like art and imagination were not these sort of uh, lauded and celebrated ideas that they are today. They're actually seen as a form of deception. And this idea of art as a deception and, and as dangerous to society goes back to Plato, uh, arguably before Plato. And it's the idea that really under capitalism, there's a little too much creativity in the capitalist economy in the sense that, you know, if you go down to Wall Street right now, uh, you're going to find rooms in Goldman Sachs and uh, Bank of America where people with PhDs in astrophysics are sitting around figuring out how to create new derivative uh, contracts, figuring out how to build high-frequency trading machines, basically trying to compete with other financiers to game the system as best they can. So there's a kind of artfulness within capitalism that is allowing this phenomenon we call financialization to run amok, in the sense that, you know, uh, now this speculative force, which is, you know, throwing money around the world and multiplying bets uh, upon bets upon bets, uh, is really skewing any way in which the prices of things uh, which is to say the actual monetary value of something, is connected to its underlying value. So just for very, very briefly, I mean, you're in Chicago, so all around Chicago there are warehouses full of raw materials, including foodstuffs and also things like aluminum, that are sitting there that will may never be used, but the, the deeds to those uh, resources are being traded multiple times on financial markets. So on the one hand, we can see that as a pathology of capitalism, but I prefer to see it as a way in which capitalism has mobilized the imagination, mobilized a certain kind of creativity, a certain artfulness, our kind of incredible human capacities to create things that we imagine beforehand, and put that towards the purposes of accumulating wealth for some. So that's the kind of bad side. The good side, I would say, about what uh, art has, how art can threaten or challenge capitalism is fundamentally art holds the space open for our imagination. It holds the space open that everywhere else in society has been foreclosed. There's not actually a lot of spaces left in our society to think about the system that we live in, to think about the deeper questions of society. The university, as we've spoken about in a previous 
uh, interview, has been deeply, deeply commodified and financialized already. Uh, we no longer have, except for, of course, your show and several others, uh, a kind of media that's willing to ask deep and profound questions and challenge power. There are very few spaces in our society to actually uh, bring our imaginations outside of the sort of commodified and financialized realms that they've been habituated into by people who are basically trying to exploit or extort or um, uh, extract value from us. And so art, even though it has, in fact, been highly commodified for its entire history and now financialized in profound ways, there's still something about the space that it has to hold open in our society that leaves a kind of room for the imagination and room for collective exercises of the imagination, especially when those artworks are experienced together and in public or are you know, used as workshops in order to harness and enliven the imagination of social movements. Is neoliberal neoliberalism then is, is is the final goal of neo, neoliberalism, whether it's an intended goal a goal or an unintended consequence, to close all of those areas like art, where neoliberalism can be challenged? Is the idea to close those spaces of potential challenge to neoliberalism? In a way, although I would say it, I, I don't know if we could really say neoliberalism has a goal. It's, it's a phenomenon that's driven by the contradictions and competition of capitalism as it reaches a very high rate of accumulation and this sort of competition between capitalists who can't really help themselves uh, from you know, competing ruthlessly to outdo one another. Um, but I think I would offer just a little correction to that, which is I think it doesn't the, the problem with neoliberalism and financialization, which is different than I think other earlier moments of capitalism, is that uh, ultimately it's not trying to close down the imagination. You know, you can imagine that, you know, back in the 19th century, capitalists had no interest in the imagination of workers. And if workers' imaginations became too grand and they thought they perhaps deserved to be able not to starve or that they deserved for instance, to take over the means of production, that would be answered by brutal, repressive force. Today, in this moment of capitalism, because it's so highly individualized and so highly based on individuals imagining themselves as competitive agents with one another and so deeply invested in consumerism, neoliberal financialization as a system, if we can say it wants something, what it wants is for all of us to reorient our imagination and creativity towards participation within the system. So it doesn't close down the imagination or creativity. It would be more accurate to say it puts it to work, and it encourages each of us to put it to work in the name of our own individual economic survival. What does this look like? Well, on the realm of work, it looks like this increasing encouragement that all of us should, throughout our entire lives, even since childhood, be cultivating a kind of curriculum vitae or a resume that includes hobbies, passions, skills, and that when it comes time to offer this at the workplace, we should arrive to basically be able to sell our labor power or our human capital, as it's been reframed by sort of neoliberal theologians, as, uh, as an asset to be rented by our boss. And the second way that that works is that just on the level of everyday life, I mean, some of us, like me, work in the sort of cultural field. I'm a teacher. So I am working with my imagination and with my mind. But anyone in the society, even if you're doing manual labor, has had to become vastly more creative and imaginative just in terms of how to make ends meet in an era when real wages adjusted for inflation are dropping and corporate profits are skyrocketing. 
So from your description earlier, it sounds like art is expanding the financial imagination under neoliberalism. Yet one of the criticisms we've heard from a lot of analysts who have appeared on our show is that neoliberalism stagnates the political imagination. So why does why under neoliberalism can art expand the financial imagination, but is unable to expand the political imagination? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I think um, I would draw it here on uh, the late Mark Fisher's notion of capitalist realism, which is the the strange way in which under this moment of neoliberalism, after the so-called end of history, as announced by Francis Fukuyama in the early 90s, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's a sense of absolute sort of fatalism um, about capitalism. It's here to stay, and all you can do is really kind of tinker around the edges or compete to survive within it. Um, and I think that is a fundamental foreclosure of the political imagination, because it says, you know, this, is, this system is uh, unavoidable. Now, I would say that I actually think after the 2008 financial crisis, that um, end-of-history ideology has actually been challenged it's been challenged, of course, from the left by social movements who are saying that we need to essentially have some version of socialism, which has always been the obvious answer um, on some level, although there are many different types of socialism one could propose. But I think, unfortunately, what we've seen in the last two or three years, or what we've been made aware of, is that also that uh, consensus has been challenged from the right. And the right has uh, essentially propounded and is in the project of developing uh, neo-fascism as a dominant ideology. And that uh, is, is still a capitalist ideology, ultimately, but like all forms of fascism, it insists that the only way to save capitalism from its own uh, pathologies is for a strong, centralized, usually ethno-nationalist or uh, religious fundamentalist state to be kind of the supreme arbiter and the ultimate expression of force. So I think in this case, we have um, a, a real horrific foreclosure of the political imagination. And this is where I think art becomes, in a weird way, so important, because we need to remember our powers. You know, the success of both, the success of fascism is to insist that our powers only stem from our obedience to an authoritarian master. And the success of capitalism as an ideology is to success that our powers, our creative powers as individuals and as a society, can only be fully expressed in the competitive landscape of the market. Well, there are and there have been other alternatives. And in fact, even just the experience of daily life shows us that our most creative, imaginative and pleasurable moments come from collective experiences. It's not to discount the importance of individuals who are truly incredibly talented and gifted and can offer us great cultural treasures, whether it's in music or visual arts or dance or performance or literature. But it is to say that for those things to become treasured, they become treasured collectively. And they only have resonance when they resonate with larger audiences who are there to witness and to take them in and to allow it to transform them. We are speaking with organizer and educator Max Haven. Uh, he has a new book out, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. And I was just looking at my notes, Max, and uh, I have like 60 pre-written questions. <laughs> I've gotten through two so far because I keep having follow-ups like this one. So is neoliberal? does neoliberalism then, uh, this is something I kept thinking about when I was reading your book, does it make us all 
artists, and that is, I know the precarious life of even prior to financialization, but even more recently, like in the 1990s, I know the precarious life of artists. I know how difficult their life can be, how they're basically a one-person shop that is completely vertically integrated. They're their distribution person. They're their marketing person. They're the people who create the content. And they have to go out essentially begging, trying to find work for themselves so they can sell their art, so they can sell their brand. How much does financialization make us all those kind of free agent artists? I think to a very real extent. Um, And there's one way that I'd really want to insist on that and one way that I'd want to kind of challenge it. So I think almost 20 years ago now, the English cultural studies scholar Angela McRobbie uh, pointed out that, in her words, uh, artists had become the pioneers of the new economy, or were held up as the pioneers of the new economy, really against their will. Uh, And that, as you say, was precisely that uh, in a moment when governments sort of were moving away from central uh, sort of social democratic economic planning, uh, from the post-war period, or uh, not social democratic, let's say Keynesian economic planning. Um, and this was also uh, sort of accompanied by the deindustrialization of the global north uh, and the movement of uh, the kind of exploitation of industrial labor to the global south. There was this rhetoric of creativity, creative economies, creative cities, the creative class. And this really held up the figure of the artist, this kind of romantic, no-strings-attached, freewheeling, uh, arbitrageur of the self as the icon that all workers were supposed to emulate. And there was this lionization of the figure of the artist as someone who navigates the field of capitalism without relying on like full-time permanent job, without relying on the paternalism of the nation state and the welfare state. Um, and to a certain extent, that's just grown and grown and grown. And it's been tied into the, the kind of structural and cultural changes of financialization, such that, you know, like all of these shows, like The Voice or like American Idol, these are shows about artists who invest a huge amount in secret, usually, in their cultural capacities and their cultural capital, in their skills and talents and then sort of go on the auction block, for lack of a better word, and try and get these bosses, essentially, to uh, you know, laud them and skyrocket them into uh, fame and fortune. But like those shows, the artistic field, and almost other, every other field of the economy that we're seeing now, is one where a, a large number of people compete for a very small number of opportunities, which allows some people to become kind of superstars and earn money and have economic stability and get glamour and fame and recognition, while the vast majority of people uh, suffer in obscurity and end up being sandwich artists, which is what you know Subway restaurants has the audacity to call their exploited employees. So on the one hand, I think that this idea of the artist as the, uh, economy, uh, the pioneer of the new economy is absolutely true and it's become more true recently. I think the one way that I would challenge it is to say that the vast majority of workers today never get any opportunity to express their creativity and imagination, and uh, any claims that they do are kind of bogus. Like, sandwich artist is another good example. You can call this person an artist. You can talk about how, you know, when when your awful boss calls you in for the job interview at Subway, they want you to tell them that you're passionate about making sandwiches, that you love the public that you're trying to, you're using this job to improve your human capital so you can go on and have a great career in a house and blah, 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 all the things you're supposed to want under capitalism. But the reality is they don't care. They want a human body with 
a minimal amount of cognitive function to stand there, you know, assembling parts of a sandwich all day so that they can sell it for a profit and cultivate surplus value. So I, I, I want to insist that, yes, of course, this idea of the artist is still very dominant and very um, pr- profound in the way that it's trying to restructure our imaginations to bring us into line with financialization and neoliberalism. But when we actually look at the reality of society, the vast majority of us are never going to get to express our creativity. We're never going to get rewarded for it. And the best we can say about most people's artistic activities under this system is that they help people stay alive and sane and retain some shred of humanity in very dehumanizing circumstances. As uh, Rebecca Solnit pointed out in her book, Hollow Cities, back in, what, 1999, I think it was, uh, that artists are the, you know, kind of bohemian pioneers who eventually end up gentrifying neighborhoods. And here we're talking about artists being the template for precarity and the type of job experience we now have under financialization. How much does the creative class cause the problems of financialization? How much is the creative class agents of financialization and neoliberalism, whether they want to admit it or whether they realize it or not? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, if we're going to talk about gentrification and, and the use of artists as sort of levers or vehicles to, uh, to open up what were formerly poor, usually racialized neighborhoods for sort of investment and, uh, you know, accumulation by dispossession, as David Harvey puts it, then I think we need to go back one step because here we have to introduce the, the notions of, of race and class and gender, which also are tied up in the notion of the artist. I mean, it's not a coincidence that the idea that we have of the quintessential artist looks a lot like the reality of who throughout capitalist history has been the quintessential capitalist. They are typically uh, white men, usually from Western Europe, but not exclusively, who are from elite backgrounds. That's who we associate typically with artists, although we have a certain notion since the um, Impressionists that they are sort of poor and um, and sort of, uh, uh, how do you say, like... Um, uh, Poor in a very romantic way, poor in a sort of glamorous way. But of course, throughout actual, the actual history of capitalism, many of the artists, and especially the art collectors and art world, have been from the elite. Uh, and specifically, uh, there, there have been the same people who've been running factories and managing colonies. And, you know, women have, until really the 20th century, been almost completely excluded from the realm of artists. So beginning from that position where the idea or ideal of the artist is really a member of the ruling class, uh, we can now draw a cleaner line to what, how that ideal is being mobilized in, um, in, in this moment of financialized capitalism. So here we see that artists have become what, what some scholars have called the shock troops of gentrification. Shock troops are you know, those soldiers who are put out at the front of the army who are really meant to be slaughtered, uh, but who are sort of so fanatical and driven that they can break through the front line of the enemy ranks. So this militarized metaphor seems quite accurate for what happens to artists because these days, especially in the 20th century, many artists tend to live on the economic margins of society, even if they do come from positions of inherited wealth. Uh, They tend to be looking for large studio spaces in usually abandoned or uh, semi-abandoned zones or zones that are presumed to be abandoned by the kind of dominant uh, sociocultural paradigm. 
And so they end up moving into neighborhoods where rent is cheap uh, or where wealthier people do not desire to live. And following them come the kind of yuppies who are attracted to the artists, who are attracted to the kind of culture and businesses that artists either start or that they sort of catalyze within a neighborhood. And slowly rents rise, the police start showing up, uh, and the original inhabitants of the neighborhood and eventually the artists themselves get kind of pushed out of the, the uh, out of the way to make room essentially for people who are seeing the neighborhood as a source of investment, as a, as a place to sink their money so that they can they can benefit from rising property prices in the future, whether they live in that neighborhood or not. This is just one of the ways in which art becomes a kind of um, a, a sort of tool for financialization, and artists become a tool for financialization. But there are others as well. I mean, for quite a long time, art has been a, a method for evading taxes or for laundering money. You know, investing in art and then donating art to a major museum or art gallery becomes a kind of tax-deductible donation for many extremely wealthy people. Uh, you can use art in various ways to move money around the world by moving art. You can sink your money into expensive works of art and store them in a free port, which is basically like a luxury warehouse attached to an airport with uh, special uh, special rules around customs and duties and special legal designations. You can kind of put your art collection in these vaults for for centuries and trade the rights to that art as a purely financial asset. There are companies now that specialize in pooling the assets of many investors and then hiring a bunch of art experts to basically buy a collection of art uh, purely as a kind of portfolio for its future returns. And many other mechanisms for mobilizing art as a, as a what used to be called an alternative asset class, but I think one that's becoming more and more central to the thinking and operations of many financiers and even financial institutions like banks. Because you write about, uh, you write in the last 15 years or so, astronomical records have been set, then broken for the hammer price of works by still living artists at the world's uh, duopoly fine art auction houses, Sotheby's and Christie's. But this represents only a fraction of all the works sold in the notoriously murky, cronyistic, and one might even say deeply corrupt market for art. Can the art industry, can the art market, corrupt finance? In a certain extent, although I think finance is fundamentally corrupt, so it can't really be more corrupted. Uh, you know, this is, a, this is an industry that claims to, um, I mean, within the claims of neoliberals, the purpose of the financial services industry is to take deposits of people who have accumulated a lot of money and distribute it throughout the capitalist economy so that other enterprises can succeed. Uh, according to sort of neoliberal theology, what what markets do is they properly allocate and assign the prices to assets by creating markets of buyers and sellers. So I won't go into what that means, except to say that within neoliberalism, there's a there's a sort of a notion that ultimately the financial services industry is is a good thing and is a is a a, a kind of pure organ of capitalism, the capitalist body. But I think if we look historically, as we've spoken about in previous interviews, we can see that the financial services industry has always existed to facilitate, to normalize, and in many ways to hide or disguise uh, horrific forms of exploitation and uh, extraction of resources from people on the earth, starting with slavery and colonialism, for which the kind of signature institutions of finance uh, were created. So 
I want to say on one hand that there is a way that this moment of financialization of the last 30 years has been really, you know, in a way changed by uh, the kind of flights of the imagination and forms of kind of noxious creativity that financiers have been able to get away with in a moment when they're no longer being regulated by the state in any way a sufficient manner, and also in a way where social movements have been at a, a low point in, their, in the tide, and where essentially capitalists have no reason to fear uh, that inequality will lead to their unseating. Uh, but I think ultimately I wouldn't call that art and creativity corrupting finance. I would just call that a changing relationship between the two. The two have always been related, and we shouldn't sort of mourn the passing of this notion of sort of autonomous, free, radical art that we think existed in the past and now has been corrupted. Likewise, we shouldn't we shouldn't mourn the passing of a kind of good and pure financial industry that has been corrupted by kind of the evil imaginations and machinations of sort of greedy individuals. Both art and money have always been embroiled within each other. They've been encrypted within each other, to use the terminology I use in the book. Uh, and the question for me is not how can art, as something that stands outside of finance and outside of capitalism, comment on capitalism and finance. The question instead for me is how can art, as something that has always been embroiled within finance and within capitalism, but that form of embroilment is changing, how can it comment on and reveal and challenge financialization and capitalism from within. So it's not an argument that art is somehow this kind of pure, beautiful thing that is, you know, comes out of the romantic imagination, the sort of spark from God. It's really saying this thing has always emerged within and evolved out of capitalism. And so maybe it has something to teach us about the system that has given birth to it. So, but we always want to have this romantic notion that money and art are kind of anathema to one another. So why do we embrace that idea of that romantic idea of art and money being separate from one another? If in reality, we can easily see that they have always gone hand in hand. Why do we have this romantic notion or why do we even want to have that romantic notion? Well, I think I'd say there's maybe three reasons I'd mention, and there are more. One of them is that that romantic notion of the artist is precisely what guarantees art its financial value. That is what capitalists want to buy. They want to buy, they don't want to buy, you know, study in blue number 36. They want to buy a Gerhard Richter. They want to buy a Andy Warhol. They want to buy a, a Damien Hirst. They refer to these um, pieces, these, these commodities that they're speculating on by the name of the artist, because the name of the artist uh, as this kind of romantic figure guarantees the value of the work. Um, it's not just a canvas. It is something associated with the signature of the artist. It's a very strange form of magic. The second thing I would say is I think this romantic idea of the artist uh, still functions in part because our society has become so individualized. So in previous centuries, in previous decades, where society has not been so completely uh, atomized by neoliberalism, the figure of the artist has been seen as a distrustful figure, as a radical figure, as a provocative figure, or as a figure of moral degeneracy. In a moment of hyper-individualism, we are all encouraged to think of ourselves as if we could, in a weird way, be artists, even if we don't have any artistic talent or don't believe we have any artistic talent, and even if we are working in, you know, the, as a sandwich artist. There's this sense that the artist uh, 
holds the place for a kind of valorized or glamorized individual actor in our society that we're all supposed to want to be or to become. Someone who's free, someone whose imagination gets to play, someone who's romantic and passionate, all of the things that we're told we're supposed to want to be in a highly individualized society. And the final thing I'll say about it is we fetishize the artist and the idea of art as we've understood it precisely so that we don't have to witness or own the incredible damage that has been done to us as social, collective, and creative beings. What capitalism has done over the last 30 years to the soul, for lack of a better term, and I'll use that term in the way that Franco Berardi uses it, as you know, not this kind of thing that's given by God, not this metaphysical instance, but this sort of passionate dimension of our material existence, that has been incredibly damaged by this system. It's been damaged by decades of exploitation, decades of individualism, decades of being replaced with this kind of competitive drive. To the extent that we can still believe in the myths of art and the artist, we can look away from the rot that is not only occurring within our society as a whole, but within each of us, which is precisely that when art, when the thing we call art and when creativity and the imagination function as perhaps would be a more healthy way in a society where everyone had everything they needed to thrive and to contribute, which is to say a society that was based on perhaps socialist or anarchist principles, where everyone can thrive and contribute as they should, then, and only then, I think, do creativity and the imagination get to live their full life. Under the system that we have now where our, our cooperative and our uh, commoning impulses are subordinated and transformed into competition, distrust, fear, and scarcity, these things are fragments and fractured versions of what they could be. And that is a very difficult thing for any of us to look at, both as a society and as an individual. And so instead of looking at that, and as we should, getting very angry about what's been done to us, and then working together to transform that situation, instead, we sort of look towards art and the artist as this fetishized realm, where at least we know that this person is getting to live this wonderful life of glamour and recognition and creativity and passion and, and pleasure. And as long as they exist out there, the rest of us can, you know, can make do. So the starving artist legitimizes the one who's making $100,000 a painting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, Gregory Shillette uh, is a great, great commentator on, on this. Uh, and he talks about dark matter. He describes this as dark matter. So, you know, in the, in the night sky, uh, when we look up at space, there's stars, and the stars are indeed brilliant, and they're, you know, burning nuclear reactors that, you know, have incredible gravity and weight, and they're beautiful. And that's the same in the art world. There are these stars, and many of them are extremely talented. Um, but what is in between? And if you look at the whole density of space, of course, the stars make up less than a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of 1%. There's a huge amount of dark matter out there, which, you know, is this, what, what Cholette borrows from the sort of astrophysics is this missing mass out there. And that is all of the people who are struggling, those people who are hobbyists, who are creators, who are fans, who are making art in the hopes of being recognized but are never going to be recognized, who are people who are throwing their artistic and creative and imaginative passions into things that they are not actually rewarded by. For instance, people who are, you know, basically like go to work every day and come up with new ideas for their boss so their boss can make more money, uh, but who are never going to have, you know, have that work recognized. 
So there's this massive amount of creative and imaginative labor going on um, in our society that doesn't get called art, that doesn't get included in the art economy. And it's only on the basis of that huge pyramid of uh, energies that at the, the, the stone at the very top of the pyramid, which are those kind of art stars, to mix a metaphor here, uh, really get to shine so brightly. And then their work, of course, becomes uh, the assets to be managed, leveraged, and speculated upon by the proverbial 1%. And then the rest of us starve doing radio shows like this. Uh, just a couple more questions for you, Max. Uh, you write, we need to pay close attention to the way the entire field of contemporary art is embroiled in this game. Not only the auction houses, art dealers, and mega museums, but also the whole global art production chain. Independent galleries, art schools, art writers and critics, even artists themselves. Financialized money trickles down unevenly and unfairly and influences all art world spaces in some way, even spaces that are avowedly independent and allegedly radical. So, is the art industry then an unspoken welfare system that rewards white rich people institutionally and not only publicly but privately as well? Is art another institution of white privilege? I mean, certainly... Uh, that is the material reality of it for a large part. I mean, if you look at the vast majority of art stars, those people, that the sort of proverbial 1% of the art world, uh, and pretty much if you do a survey, and, and a great group from uh, New York has done this survey called uh, BFA, MFA, PhD. Uh, they've actually done a survey of artists in New York. There's other groups around the world that have done this sort of artist inquiry as well. You do find that the ability to thrive and succeed as an artist is highly uh, correlated to your level of socioeconomic and uh, cultural privilege. Um, and I think that in of itself, like, I mean, one of the struggles about writing a book about art and the art market is, as you can probably already tell, I don't particularly care what happens to the art market, and I'm not super sympathetic to artists. I'm more interested in what this can tell us about capitalism as a whole. And I think for artists who uh, are concerned about art and the art market, they should be concerned with joining other others and trying to abolish that system. But in the interest of talking about um, what art can teach us, I think this question about artists and their, their relative privilege is very important because what it shows us is that art, the art market would like to imagine itself as a pure meritocracy, like the rest of capitalism. It has to kind of build this myth that it rewards talent, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, blindly that an art collector, an art gallerist, an art system, they know great work when they see it, and they're going to reward it. Um, and But what you, in fact, see is that the people who can sur survive and thrive within the art market and the art world are often people who come from very privileged backgrounds. And that privilege tends to uh, correlate highly to access to whiteness, to being a man, to coming from uh, a, a sort of upper-class background. And that means that what gets still, you know, to this day, what gets taken to be these signature works of cultural contribution to our society and culture is disproportionately uh, the work of, you know, sort of white, wealthy men. And that, in turn, reaffirms a kind of mythology of white supremacy and patriarchal uh, notions of creativity, imagination, and capacity that are, of course, still normalized within the rest of the economy. So there's a kind of vicious circle between the art world and other spheres of our society in terms of reproducing these very pernicious mythologies. One um, last... Oh, go ahead. Yeah. No, no. 
Uh, one last question for you then, Max. Uh, we've been speaking with organizer and educator Max Haven, author of Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. Find out more about Max at maxhaven.com. That's H-A-I-V-E-N.com. And you can follow him on Twitter at Max Haven. Again, you can go to thisishell.com, listen to our Interviews and our talks with Max from the past in 2016 and 2017. 2016, uh, when we talked with him about the undercommoning, and 2017, when we discussed reactionary authoritarianism. You can find both those interviews at thisishell.com. Max is assistant professor and Canada research chair in culture, media, and social justice at Lakehead University in Thunder Bay and director of the Reimagining Value Action Lab. He's the co-director of the Radical Imagination Project, which you can find out more about at radicalimagination.org. One last question for you, and as always, it's our question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. You write that money and art, in fact, hold one another up, so to speak, to mutually reinforce one another as institutions of capitalism amidst that system's crises and contradictions. Can capitalism exist without art? (laughs) That is a good question. Um, No, it can't, in the sense that uh, capitalism needs to, and increasingly needs to, co-opt, constrain, and harness all human capacities, Um, especially as it it sort of cycles of accumulation uh, manifest in what we now call neoliberalism and financialization. Uh, it needs to claim more and more of the energies that we, as humans, are uh, are predisposed to expressing. And what we call art uh, is the foreclosure or the container in which we put those passions and energies that we associate with the terms creativity and imagination. So art is needed because it's a box within capitalism where we dump a bunch of stuff that we don't want well, we do want it, but capitalists don't want it infecting the rest of the economy. If we actually got to express our creativity and imagination in terms of how we organize society, that's a form of socialism or anarchism. That's not capitalism. In capitalism, only a few people ever get to do that. Uh, so essentially, capitalism does need art. Previous moments of capitalism have needed art in different ways. They've needed art to help reproduce the capitalist class, to give you know, capitalists the reason to go to the opera and hobnob with one another, to give capitalists a, a art schools to send their children to, to give capitalists assets that they can buy and admire, and in admiring the artwork that they bought, admire themselves in a kind of narcissistic fashion for their wisdom and benevolence and cultural largesse. So at various moments in capitalism, capitalism has always needed art. That said, it doesn't need art as much as it needs a lot of other things, like, for instance, money or like labor. Um, if we, if all artists went on strike, and there have been efforts to do this, it would not immediately bring uh, the collapse of the capitalist system. What would be much more effective, however, is if artists said, I went on strike as part of, let's say, a global creativity and imaginative strike, which is to say everyone who labors would strike, a general strike of you know, a whole population, to say that we will no longer stand for our creativity, imagination, passion, and pleasure to be constrained and exploited by the system. And that's the point where I think art has some leverage. It's not so much about it as this distinct field where you go and you see this nice object in a gallery. It has to do with the place that it holds in our imagination for the things that we truly want to animate our society, but which are today denied to so many of us and denied to the kind of structure of the system as a whole. 
Max, it has been a pleasure talking to you again. Enjoy the rest of your weekend on the shores of Lake Gichigumi. I really appreciate you being back on our show, and you know I'll be bugging you again to have you return once, once more to This Is Hell. It's always a pleasure. Truly Revolting Radio, This Is Hell. We're all freaking miserable, and it keeps getting worse. Millennials are waking up to exactly how bad things are, and they want to change, a real change. They want a revolution. Luckily, Chapo Trap House has one, and we'll find out what it is when we talk to Matt Christman and Brendan James, co-authors of the Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. Matt is a host of the podcast Chapo Trap House. Brendan is a writer, musician, and former producer of Chapo. Matt and Brendan wrote the Chapo Guide to Revolution with Felix Biederman, Will Menneker, and Virgil, Texas. Let's go to the update booth with Alex to find out what he's been up to on social media. So what have you been doing on the Facebooks, Twitters, and whatnot, Alex? Uh, first of all, as an update, I watched uh, new producer Leo eat a bowl of cereal without a spoon. It was wild over here. What kind of cereal? That was, was the real... Cinnamon Toast Crunch, I believe, right? It's kind of easy to grab. The Cheerios would be a little bit more difficult. That's right. Sure. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, online, my posting. Uh, I shared a Void Network post called Inside Bannon's Plan to Hijack Europe for the Far Right. That was uh, very good. Uh, That's Boy- been reported on now for a few months, and it's been really fantastic. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, also, I shared a piece Chuck recommended to me on Detroit reta- Detroit's retail speculation uh, that is wild and uh, we're working on booking the reporter for two weeks from now so hopefully that happens it's really interesting also a long essay that I really loved on the environmental crisis of human excrement under industrial capitalism (laughs) in London at the monthly review and uh, I posted something about Richard Spencer owning someone I had to think a while about the utility of posting a clip of Richard Spencer owning someone but uh, it's a definitely hellish story that is very on brand Uh, also on Twitter this week, I learned that uh, past guest Tressie McMillan Cottom has a new book out in December yeah. called Thick. Uh, Chuck, are you aware of the concept of thickness? Uh, no, I'm not, but I know it's a collection of her essays, and uh, yeah, she's already in the uh, interview uh, request uh, queue. Well, what is the concept of thickness uh, other than the one I'm thinking of? Uh, it's probably what you're thinking of. We'll talk about this, and uh, um, Tressie's maybe is different. Uh, we have until December to figure that out. And also, I reshared uh, two very important conversations on policing in Chicago that we've done recently on the gang database with Janae Bonsu and the yeah. anti-loitering law with Andrea Ritchie, uh, both targeting black and brown neighborhoods. And Flint Taylor was amazing on the last live episode of This Is Hell. So go back to our August 4th uh, show and listen to Flint Taylor, who was the guy who prosecuted uh, John Burge, and he's involved with many of the police violence convictions here in Chicago. It's time for listener feedback. First, e- Actually, Alexandra contacted us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. Alexandra is concerned about a couple of guests on today's This Is Hell. Alexandra writes, I'm super excited for the Chapo Trap House interview and happy you're getting Kushbaum, the smartest one in my opinion. I wanted to suggest that Chuck bring up their statements about the move bombing, though. I've heard a couple of Chapo Trap House episodes and generally like what they have to say, but was pretty grossed out by their jokes regarding move and they seriously alienated uh, black radicals and even 
and black non-radicals. It strikes me as a super unnecessary, tasteless, and divisive thing to joke about, and it just sucks when people are already trying to equate socialists with Bernie bros, that they haven't even addressed it or apologized as far as I can tell. So that might even be a good question from hell, or worked in under something about their shock jock style and the pros and cons. I'm sure many of your black radical listeners would like to hear their answers too. Anyway, the statements are in episode 174, and she gives me some links for context. Alexandra, I appreciate the heads up and the link to the episode in question. We'll definitely ask them about the move joke and give you credit for bringing it to our attention. So thank you very much. And yes, that will be our question from hell, in case those of you do not know. Uh, The Philadelphia Move movement uh, was a black uh, liberation movement uh, in Philadelphia, obviously, in the early 1980s, which owned some properties or was at least, uh, you know, occupying some properties in Philadelphia. I'm not really too sure the uh, state of their ownership, but the mayor of Philadelphia, Frank Rizzo, was so upset with them that he eventually uh, did an aerial bombardment by police actually dropping bombs on the MOVE group in Philadelphia, leading to many deaths. So we'll be asking the Chapo gentleman about that when we get to the question from hell. We got emails from the newest member of our crew, Leo, and Leo has a guest suggestion. He writes, here's the guy I was talking about during office hours, Daniel K. Hertz. He works for the Chicago Center for Tax and Budget Accountability on Twitter at CTBA underscore online. He is a photographer of interesting buildings on Chicago's north side, and he wrote a book coming out in October called The Battle of Lincoln Park from Belt Publishing. Here's a good blurb about it. He sends me this blurb about the book. We received the book in the mail actually here, and uh, we may be reaching out to him in October when the book is released. Again, that book is The Battle of Lincoln Park, and that's all about the battle between uh, who was the, uh, the battle against gentrification, the young lords, uh, especially within the old town area who were fighting against gentrification, ended up moving out to Humboldt Park. Uh, Leo, thanks for the suggestion. We just had that book delivered. So yes, we may have him on the air. Alex or Leo also sends us about Amber Case, who writes about non-intrusive tech and how we're already cyborgs, which sounds great for This Is Hell. And her website is caseorganic.com. And he also suggests Rupert Sheldrake, a biologist who coined morphic fields. He just came out with a book uh, this June called Science and Spiritual Practices. So, uh, And he says, I think that's the best book to use as a starting point in reference to an interview uh, is uh, another book of his called Science Set Free. So lots of suggestions from Leo. Thank you, Leo, for participating. Stephen also has a guest suggestion for us. Stephen, uh, who, unlike Leo, qualifies for free This Is Hell advertising stickers if his suggested guests make it on the air on This Is Hell. Uh, Stephen writes, Hey Chuck, a friend of mine has been operating an experimental church in Massachusetts for decades. He has a rather sarcastic view of things. I'm pacing an interview with him from the Boston Globe. He isn't very tech-savvy at all and has bad vision, so if you would like to get in touch with him, email me back. I just learned about This Is Hell over the past couple of months, and I love your show. I haven't missed a segment you've posted on Apple's podcast site. Keep up the great work. Sincerely, Stephen. Stephen then sends a link to a Boston Globe article headlined How Richard Emanuel Became Reverend of a Church with a Mission 
but no members. The article says, if you remember the 1960s, it's been said you weren't really there. Richard Emanuel remembers the 60s, though, vividly. Not only was he there, man was he there, but in 1968, when he was 22 and the counterculture was in full freak flag waving bloom, he founded his own church in Gloucester, Massachusetts, the blue-collar fishing town where he'd spent summers as a youth. The church as it became known, has been many things. Meeting house, art gallery, counseling office, meditation center to many people for the past 44 years, now threatened with foreclosure by the bank. It may soon join Ken Kesey's Merry Prankster bus as a mothballed relic of the flower power 60s. In the article, one person calls Emmanuel a living time capsule. And I don't know if we've ever had a living time capsule on our show, other than Ralph Nader. So thanks for the tip, Stephen, and my apologies to... Ralph Nader. Uh, let's see. Do you already have? Yes, we do have our guests online. So let me just put these notes over here. Get this stuff out of the way. Put a line here to remember where I am and listener feedback. Good gravy. And we've got a ton of listener feedback that we need to get caught up on with all of you, our listening audience. This week's question from hell is, what will the final post made on this planet say? What will the final post made on this planet say? All replies get read on air following our next guests on this week's This Is Hell, our favorite wins. The book that they wrote, The Chapo Guide to Revolution. Again, the question from hell is, what will the final post made on this planet say? Leave your response now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. And listen following our guests, our next guest to see or to hear all the answers and to find out if you have one. Coming up on this week's This Is Hell, Revolutionary Manifesto, Our Need for Black Radicalism, and Jeff Does Some Racial Thinking. That stuff plus the question from hell, a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Hopefully we'll get back into listener feedback. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge and, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly, Gnome's gone insane. This is hell. We need a revolution and bad. Here to explain why we are so desperate for revolution and describe what that revolution can be. Matt Christman and Brendan James are co-authors of the Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. First, we'll start with you, Matt. Welcome to This is Hell. Thank you for having me. And Brendan, uh, welcome to This Is Hell as well. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Kushbaum, and you can follow Brendan on Twitter at Deep underscore Beige. Again, they wrote The Chapo Guide to Revolution with Felix Biederman, Will Menneker, and Virtual Texas. You can find out more about Chapo Trap House at chapotraphouse.com. Uh, let's start with you, Matt. Why did you dedicate your book on revolution to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan? Well, it's a classic reference to the film Rambo 3, uh, the film when Rambo goes to Afghanistan and, and fights alongside the Taliban against the Soviets, a thing that would have no negative consequences in the future whatsoever. And we just wanted to shout out to that wonderful moment in America's foreign policy history. was a wonderful moment in uh, foreign policy history. Not a great moment in Rambo movie franchise history, however. Uh, So, um, and Brendan, uh, is 
the left because when I was reading that uh, you know the dedication to your book is the left mm-hmm. or right more easy to provoke if one or the other why mm-hmm. is that group more easy to provoke well I would say that uh, if I could broaden or just add one more category to to your question is is you know is is the right or the center or the left you know easiest to provoke and I would say that the left is you know, left has its blind spots. The left can definitely, you know, uh, get itself uh, uh, all all huffy over certain silly things. But the center and the right just seem, from our experience, coming from the left, just so, so easy to get riled up over very petty, very silly things. And I would say the right has it by a hair because they're just so, their ideology and what runs through their veins is so psychotic and so, like, naturally um, uncomfortable and, and, uh, scatterbrained and, and desperate, uh, for love that they're never going to get, that it's very easy to set them off. But, but centrist liberals are very close these days. So Matt, why does Chapo Trap House, this is a question I've had, uh, asked of me in the past. Uh, why does Chapo Trap House use comedy? Why do you use comedy or satire when you are reporting on the news? Uh, why not? Uh, do you believe that you show any kind of disrespect or a lack of importance to news by using comedy or satire? Or do you think it's exactly the opposite of that? More than anything, it's a, it's a coping mechanism. It's really the only way that I know, I personally, and I think also my co-host, can process what's going on around us is to sort of make it into a humorous exaggeration that we can have fun with. And, and uh, it's, it's just a way to stay sane. Uh, and it's really the only way that we can. I mean, I don't know if we could do a show that that didn't devolve into absurdity and comedy when we're talking about these kind of subjects because it's just sort of a, a reflexive move. Well, Matt, let me just follow up on that uh, for a second. Uh, what would you say to, or what happens to a program when they refuse to embrace the entire emotional spectrum that we might have? What happens to a, a program when it uh, says we are just not going to do or say anything funny? We are not going to have humor be part of this conversation. I mean, I just find that it's eventually just hard to take. I mean, people need some sort of levity. They need sort of a, a different emotional registers or, or else it just becomes monotonous. Brendan, you write in the book, if you're re- reading these words, you're likely living in despair and hopelessness. You are fed a steady diet of thin, flavorless gruel by your leaders, your parents, fake friends who love drama. You find yourself in the dumbest of all possible worlds. Clowns to the left of you, rethuglicans to the right, like a veal calf, you sit in your crate every day, growing sadder, softer, and more delicious, thinking there's got to be a better way. So, Brendan, how difficult is it to find a better way when we're busy, growing sadder, softer, and more delicious? Is the biggest obstacle to finding a better way the fact that we are growing sadder, softer, and more delicious? Yes, and that line is obviously being played for laughs, but hearing it read back to me, it really does get at the heart of, I think, something that the left is dealing with right now, because there is some energy now, after a long time, that there is a pretty broad... um, sort of inertia happening and that's encouraging but it also has to you know come with the realization that the left is very weak in america and uh, all of the symptoms of why things need to change 
and things that the left has on its agenda to change are also reasons why it becomes very easy to get exhausted and very easy to bum out. If I could reference the last question you asked, Matt, that's one reason why comedy is so important to us is, you know, uh, listeners during their day, if they're, you know, in any way fighting the good fight, trying to organize, trying to, you know, um, volunteer or contribute in any way, that will burn you out. If you come home and then you listen to a podcast that you like, and that also burns you out, then you're really in trouble. So the, the, the comedy is, is, as Matt said, sort of a coping mechanism because all, all the rest of your day is probably exhausting you. But yes, I think it's, it's a problem, and it's something that, you know, hopefully everyone on the left is able to overcome because it's, it's, it's such a grim situation that, um, you know, you really need to push through it and have, as they say, the uh, pessimism of the intellect and then the optimism of the will because it's, it's dark out there. Matt, is the genius then of the current system or its greatest effectiveness or success that it makes people sadder and softer, giving us a life of hopelessness and despair, making our current cultural environment unsuitable for considering a better way of life? Are we, do you think we are intentionally saddened so we won't revolt? I think it's just a a, a, a convenient byproduct of Miseration. I mean, it makes people miserable. It's right there in the name. And uh, but of the and I think more even than the fact that it, the system work, grinds people down is the fact that it's so amorphous in its injuries. It, it's just a thousand indignities every day, all coming from different uh, angles, and, and it's very difficult for a person to identify the source of all of this suffering. And as a result, it just feels disorienting and, and scary. Uh, I think that's one of the key uh, sort of control mechanisms we have. It's just this this late capitalist uh, phenomenon that 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 we have, that makes its way into every part of our lives without ever really expressing itself in a way that uh, reveals sort of the unifying thread behind all of the all of the suffering. Brendan, you mentioned the moments that may have had the greatest impact on those who are now seeking a better way, uh, including 9-11, perhaps around, you write, uh, quote, perhaps around the time America decided to invade Afghanistan and then Iraq, you had an inkling that living in the end of history wasn't going to be as utopian as promised. Maybe after John Kerry reported for duty at the 2004 Democratic Convention, you felt a brief twinge of patriotic embarrassment, followed by a bone-deep de- bone sense that things will never get better. Or maybe it was when you graduated from college with six figures of debt around the time that the economy crapped its insides out every generation before yours, Breton, or so the story goes, left a better world for their children. Their kids became more successful, made more money, had a better education, better access to health care, opportunity to have a happier, healthier, and increasingly longer life. How much do you blame the generation or generations before you, your parents and grandparents' generations, or even your parents or grandparents themselves for creating an environment in which you are living with hopeless despair instead of a better life like their parents left for them. Because every time I have asked this question of a millennial, they always say they don't blame their parents. And I tell you, I have no problem blaming my parents for what happened before I was born. Oh, Oh, I mean, let me take... I was hoping this would come up. Let me take this interview as an opportunity to say... um, a big, a big screw you to my grandparents. I don't care that they're still alive. I, I don't care that they're, uh, 
that they're in their twilight years. Uh, uh, get the heck out of here, Nana and Granddad. Um, no, I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, obviously, yes. I mean, yes, we must blame the boomers and and obviously the perpetrators of of bad stuff uh, in the generations previous. Um, I think that there is a little bit of a slippery slope to kind of a sort of repeating the boomer mistake of just getting mad at your parents all day which was a big, you know, symptom of 60s radicalism or, or parts of it. Um, so it's not just about being mad at the boomers, but yes, I mean, their generation basically, you know, has been, you know, mortgaging against uh, the future, all of our uh, hopes and dreams. And uh, there's a very good book uh, called Buying Time by Wolfgang Streak. Um, and he talks about the... Uh, the, the nature by which liberal capitalism has basically been dead or has broken down or entered some kind of anti-democratic, um, uh, you know, nightmare version of itself since the 70s. And uh, buying time is really a phrase that I think works well. And that's what the boomers certainly have, have, have been working to do is keep this compromised system of liberal capitalism uh, just, just uh, you know, uh, it shapeshifts, it takes on new ways to remain solvent, you know, debt or um, uh, all other kinds of, of uh, self-sabotaging ways to, uh, to perpetuate itself with, with a lot of boomers at the helm. And that's, you know, a, a kind of macro version of your parents partying and getting their, their uh, welfare benefits or, or whatever later <laughs> in life, while you as, as their child uh, is left to scrape around in, in the hellscape that we live in. So like, that there's there's a, a, something to that question that goes beyond just the generational thing. It's part of the system, too, that they took advantage of. So, Matt, if neoliberalism started with uh, Reagan or even earlier with Jimmy Carter in 1976 during his administration, we're looking at almost 40 years of neoliberalism. Is the hopelessness and despair of the generation who graduated from college as the financial collapse happened in 2008 uh, of millennials, is, 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 that, is that the result of neoliberalism, because this is the, my bigger point. How aware, how conversant are millennials in the neoliberalism that has an impact on their life? Because for so many older people, it seems like another version of the N-word. It's something that you cannot say, especially within the establishment media. So to what degree are millennials conversant and aware of the impact that neoliberalism has had on their lives? To generalize across an entire generation, I, I don't know if I could do that. Uh, it seems to me that they're not, they're maybe a little bit more uh, cognizant than, than maybe other earlier uh, age cohorts. But I mean, like I said, there's just such a perfect system for baffling and misdirecting people's anger and, and frustration onto other targets that it's very hard for anybody really to get a grasp on on what is the cause of their, their unhappiness. Right now, there are a million uh, hucksters on the center and, and right, especially offering their own personal snake oil explanation, the cultural Marxist or whatever silliness. <laughs> and that, in, in, a, in a sort of a, in a very uh, arid media landscape, it's easy for those things to get a lot of purchase. I do think that more than anything, this generation of people is just not as, enchanted by the Cold War era scary spook stories about socialism that previous ones were, because they didn't grow up under the Cold War shadow. 
they didn't grow up with that that sort of ingrained reflexive fear of this 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 ideological other that is like the opposite of freedom and the opposite of of uh, uh, democracy. Uh, and as a result, they're more willing to take an idea like socialism on its own merits instead of filtering it through a bunch of ideological baffles like previous generations. As we were just talking to Max Haven about financialization and how it within our history it is relatively new, uh, Brendan, how different do you think financialization and neoliberalism, how different do you think it has made the age group that you live within uh, compared to its predecessors? How different does that mm-hmm. uh, living experience uh, make your living experience from those who are, let's say, over 40 years old? That's a good question. It's clearly um, handing the keys to of capitalism to finance capital uh, certainly didn't do anything great for the system. And, and I do think it's important to distinguish between these different phases. I would say that, um, no, it, it's made things worse. I mean, what, what we write in the book is that there was a moment, sort of right smack dab in the middle of the 20th century, where um, uh, liberal capitalism had, its, had its, its, its time to shine. And it was a compromise between labor and capital that said, we'll do more profit sharing, and, you know, more um, uh, sort of uh, almost social democratic uh, style uh, welfare uh, benefits for, for everyone to remain uh, happy with the system as it is and not to be tempted by the radical alternatives that were cropping up all over the world, uh, obviously chiefly in the Soviet Union and China. Um, but that really only had a 20-year run. And you, if you were, say, a white union worker, there were loads of problems. If you weren't, if you weren't in that category, of course. But if you, if you were one of the many people who was, who was that, you had a pretty good time. And 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 there's and besides the Cold War menace, that's another reason why I think a lot of the boomer types and 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 their parents remember that era fondly and think of capitalism as basically good. Is they lived through that very brief moment where you didn't have to be a robber baron to enjoy it. And so now, uh, after that fell apart, as, as you quite rightly p- uh, pointed out with, with the neoliberal turn, and having to start to financialize everything and run the economy on credit and debt, um, it's very unlikely that the system will produce that kind of uh, brief but sweet compromise for the people that get to enjoy it. And uh, I, I think less and less people will be taken in by by the, uh, by the myth that capitalism is, is still the best system, or ever was. Matt, you write, it's possible you briefly lost that feeling of impending doom in 2008 after the likable, cool presidential candidate defeated the old man who slept through all his flight school classes. But that relief probably vanished in a wave of Wall Street bailouts and drone strikes and a brief Democratic congressional majority that didn't even bother to pass the card check bill or push for true universal health care. Matt, how much did Obama let you down, and to what extent did Obama letting down those who graduated from college at the beginning of his administration when the housing bubble burst? To what degree do you think that led to Trump being president? Did Obama letting you down lead to Trump being president? I think it's more of just he let down an entire everyone who, who supported him, everyone who thought that they were getting together to create a political movement that would sort of cleanse the land of the noxious stink of the Bush administration and create something that could actually be viable and and humane. Uh, And 
yeah, it, it was immediately immediately wiped clear. Uh, I remember at the time I, I was already I mean I thought of myself as as relatively politically cynical, and uh, I I saw uh, you know you could see sort of the the outlines of a, of a coming disappointment with Obama just in the way he talked about things like like transcending partisanship and just fundamentally uh, misapprehension about how politics works, but. I guess I, the thing I thought was, you know, everyone needs to get a nice, good disillusionment in their lives, and this is a good chance to get one. And and, but I think that more so than his personal uh, uh, disappointing of anyone, but just his his decision to recapitalize Wall Street on the backs of of America, and then not really seek any sort of redress for anything or do anything to prevent the recovery, quote-unquote, from becoming just a complete uh, uh, looting uh, by, by the richest Americans and, and, and allowing any jobs that came out of this uh, recovery to just be temporary and, and, and low-paying and unstable. And then that I think that did directly re- lead to people when Trump showed up, not really having any investment in the sort of bromides about what's presidential, what's meaningful leadership. And for some people, they heard jobs. They heard someone willing to articulate a criticism of the current situation and were willing to give them a chance. That was a very bad idea, and anyone could have told you it at the time. But there really was just a huge vacuum on the other side of any kind of meaningful articulation of criticism of the current system or a remedy for what it was doing. Yeah, Matt, I was completely shocked. And Brendan, I was really shocked. Uh, in 2008, prior to Obama being elected, we had a guest on the show who had written an article for the American in Prospect about the Obama doctrine and what his military, what his foreign policy would be. And one of the things, and one of the things that they that the author had written about, he had mentioned that uh, Obama was in support of going against the sovereignty of countries like Pakistan, if necessary, to chase terrorists and mm-hmm. would attack yeah. them in those countries. And I said, how is that any different from the Bush administration? And the guest said, because Obama will do it right. Yep. And that really yep. that really stunned me uh, that they that there would be this kind of turning a blind eye just because they're so desperate for change. Now, Brendan, I asked earlier if millennials are different from earlier generations due to neoliberalism. But is that mm-hmm. the split in the Democratic Party between those who are 35 or 40 and under and those over that age? Are, is that the difference right now within? Is that the does that explain to you the split within the Democratic Party that it's people who have lived under neoliberalism and want it to end uh-huh. and those who have not lived their entire lives under neoliberalism and don't really understand why it needs to be challenged? Yeah, I mean, um I, I can't pull any numbers right now as far as, you know, the statistical split that's probably going on in the electorate of the Democrats or their party. But it certainly seems as though that a a savvier half of the party is emerging, maybe not half, but a savvier side of the party is, is emerging, that is speaking to concerns uh, among what younger people uh, believe, uh, you know, talking about um, being saddled with debt, talking about... Um, for, also on the foreign policy side, um, uh, wars, endless wars, unnecessary wars, in a way that Obama didn't even do, as you rightly point out. And then, of course, talking about um, the, uh, the the economy needing to uh, reshape itself and to decommodify things like health care. I don't necessarily trust any of the Democrats who are doing that. 
Um, but I think that there is an awareness within the party that there's something like a generational split that, that, that you outline and that we need to start messaging to people who don't vibrate towards the terms like, um, you know, competitive free markets, uh, opening up, uh, you know, pathways for hardworking people like that. They, they don't, they probably won't run with that type of rhetoric for a whole lot longer over the next 10 years. And they'll probably start to at least promise uh, more social democratic uh, inflected things like universal health care and trying to address concerns of ballooning debt, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it's still pretty cynical. Matt, uh, you write that perhaps once you get a job, you realize that the pay or if you were really lucky, the benefits package was vastly outweighed by what work took out of your soul as you spent your days white knuckling it from check to check, feeling like the same idiot failure you were before you had a job. So, Matt, is your revolution that you outline in your book a revolution against precarity? Can all the problems, all of our problems simply be fixed with higher wages and better benefits? Oh, no, not at all. Uh, I mean, I, the, the real thing that has to be articulated, and, and, and that's, I think, what the left's job is, more so than specifically anything in the Democratic Party, people on the left broadly who aren't part of that network, is uh, raising the awareness that we have to move beyond that kind of, uh, that sort of labor piece that, that ruled there during that brief interregnum between the the Gilded Ages because it's just, it was never a sustainable model. It was it was the product of a, an absolute historical uh, uh, freak moment, uh, a total blip, which was a, a situation where America was uh, at, a, at, a, at a zenith of industrial capacity at a time when the world had been dis- the, the the competing countries of the world had their industrial bases basically destroyed in World War II. And they were in the United States was the sort of the sole engine for industrial uh, production in the in the world, and that created a a bounty that uh, for a brief period, uh, capital was willing to share a bit of with labor in order to keep peace. But those profit margins don't exist anymore. That that market doesn't exist anymore. Uh, we're going to have to transcend uh, this this. this a capitalist system that is on its way of exhaust, on its way towards exhausting the planet, uh, and and uh, setting us all on a course for for annihilation of one another. I have another question for you on that, Matt. But uh, let me ask Brendan this really quick because this is uh, kind of in the same realm. Um, so, is the revolution that you prescribe then? Not as much about, Brendan, not as much about wages and benefits, increased and in better uh, wages and benefits, but more so against what uh, past guest on our show, David Graeber, calls BS jobs. That is jobs that are so vague in nature that they're hard to find your friends and often to you. It seems like you are doing pointless, busy work, the kind of work yeah. that could take your soul. Is that what your revolution is more against BS jobs than just poor pay? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, if you really want to get, uh, you know, uh, get into the Marxist jargon or, or something like it, it's, it's, it's the wage labor system. Wage labor is, is the problem. And that's not going to be an overnight, <laughs> you know, um, agenda item to, to destroy or get rid of. But BS jobs are going to crop up more and more as the economy, our basically fake economy continues to chug along. I haven't read Graeber's book. I, I got it. Sent, I think we got a copy sent to us. And I'm, I'm eager to read it because I, I think it looks interesting, but certainly I agree with the broad premise that BS jobs are going to uh, proliferate and, and in so doing, um, 
articulate the case why this is just an empty system that needs to be, as Matt said, transcended, not not uh, sort of beefed up and returned to a that kind of mythical fifties uh, and sixties. Uh, it needs to be uh, destroyed. You should definitely have David on uh, Chapo Trap House because uh, he, his giggle is infectious. Um, so he, oh, well, that's, that's helpful. So Matt, uh, you write, our case is simple. Capitalism and the politics it spawns is not working for anyone under 30 who is not a sociopath. It's not supposed to. The actual lived experience of the free market feels distinctly unfree. So Matt, what makes you think you have to be a sociopath if you are under 30 and capitalism works for you? Why would capitalism only reward those under 30 who are sociopaths? Well, I mean, it rewards those under 30 who, more than anything, are born into an economically advantageous situation where they are able to uh, uh, exploit mostly networks of, of, of privilege and, and sort of nepotism, frankly, to to gain entry into the sort of narrowing aperture of, uh, of, of meaningfully gainful employment. Uh, but in order to thrive in this world where every innovation, every economic uh, like growth sector is killing the planet or figuring out a way to hyper-exploit uh, the desperation of your fellow uh, humans, uh, some app that, uh, that can chop labor actions into tiny microtransactions that you can then uh, use to uh, arbitrage different people's willingness to be paid nothing to do something, and then you make money off of that. I mean, that's that's basically everything uh, that is being spawned by the new economy. And so anybody who's in a position to make make money off of it is somebody who doesn't really care what they're doing. We are speaking with Matt Chrisman and Brendan James, co-authors of the Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. You can follow Matt on Twitter at Cushbomb, that's C-U-S-H-Bomb, and you can follow Brendan on Twitter at Deep underscore Beige. Find out more about Chapo Trap House at ChapoTrapHouse.com. So, Brendan, you write that you don't have to side with either the uh, pear-shaped vampires of the right or the craven lanyard-wearing corporate wonks of the center-left. Dark days lie ahead, and many people are finally hungry for a fully ironic ideology for no good, entitled, downwardly mobile, politically hopeless millennials. So, third party. We were talking with Victor Wallace a few weeks ago on his book about eco-socialism, and a listener emailed us and said that there's already an eco-socialist party, the Green Party. If the right and left, Brendan, have nothing to offer to millennials, then is the answer working within the same system, capitalism, but reformed under the Green Party? I would have to say no, probably. I mean, I, 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 Matt might have different thoughts um, on this. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm not so sure, but I'm I'm sort of I've migrated to the the pretty cranky doctrinaire Marxist position of of not accepting or not being persuaded by a Green Party or otherwise a electoral road to power for the left. And I think that we're in a moment right now that a lot of people are tempted by that and and see some some victories cropping up across the country. I would never want to denigrate the people who are working for that kind of stuff because honestly, it's more than I'm doing. But I still, it, since I'm being asked, <laughs> I, I don't think that that is that that through the Green Party or, or any other party uh, in, in in a system that uh, if you really look into like the election laws is 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 pretty has has a pretty much totalitarian grip 
on the creation of any alternative to the, the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, state by state. And uh, it's going to have to be a much longer and arduous process, more arduous process of building back up a sense of uh, a labor movement. And what, what I would, if I had to do a soundbite, a class conscious, multiracial um, uh, constituency uh, led by the working class to, to have any elections mean anything. And we're so far uh, uh, away from that right now that Green Party or otherwise, I, I don't see that as a persuasive um, prescription for the left. Matt, you write that in your revolution, the use of logic, facts, and reason is outlawed. Why outlaw logic, facts, and reason, Matt? <laughs> well, I mean, that's not, we're, that's a joke. We don't really want to do that. Uh, it's really more of a rhetorical gambit meant to un- just deflate the current mania on the right and among wonks for this idea that that their ideologies are somehow not ideologies because they are only this collection of dispassionately observed facts and rigorously tested theories, and there's no ideology behind it. Uh, and, and, and anyone who doesn't like it is just being emotional. Uh, and that, that is, that's a delusional uh, and propagandistic way of thinking, and, and it's really the, sort of the way that a lot of genuine uh, snake oil and rancid reactionary politics are sort of masked and, and, and sold to a lot of the same people demographically speaking, to listen to our show. And so we wanted to make a direct sort of attack on that, uh, that fanciful notion of how, how people uh, arrive at their politics. And Brendan, uh, other ways you believe the world may look different under your revolution is, uh, well, one of them is, quote, feelings become fiat currency. What do you mean by feelings <laughs> becoming fiat currency? Why is that necessary? I don't know. I don't know what that means at all. Um, <laughs> like, like, like Matt said, uh, you know, that's a tongue-in-cheek uh, list of things that we want. But if I had to spin it into an answer, <laughs> I would probably say that um, echoing Matt, um, or maybe uh, un- underlining what he said, we really wanted to um, uh, pop the balloon that uh, certainly the right has 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 been. Um, has been fancied, uh, fancying for a long time, but I would say the center, the center left, or, or, or the center does it too. Where, as Matt said, you're being emotional basically if you if you want anything but more markets, more uh, classical liberalism, or whatever. Like pick your poison on on the on the left, or rather on the center or the right. And and we just wanted to you know make a lot of people mad who will unironically read that list and uh, and and then clutch their pearls about how we don't care about charts or uh, reason, capital R, and uh, just kind of get them riled up a little bit. Matt, you write that the world is indeed complex and is therefore boring, so we'll do our best to give you the information you need to craft a global solution. So, Matt, to what degree is that what you? it seems that we're all lurk, looking for? That is, the information we need to craft a global solution, a, a complex world boiled down to certain facts so we can, quote-unquote, know how to understand and potentially even to fix our world. Because I'm wondering if that desire for simplicity gets in the way of our ability to have a real revolution. I kind of don't understand what you mean. 
the, the, the simplicity in terms of people wanting like a quick answer or something. Yeah, and wanting to understand the world in a very simple way, and how that kind of simplicity, if like it's given to you in a doctrinaire how-to way, might actually get in the way of understanding the complex world that we live in and the complex way we need to address that world and change that world. Well, the problem is, is that people generally aren't going to, most people aren't going to really respond to anybody saying you need to have a complex understanding of X, Y, and Z by doing that. They're, they're going to be alienated by even like that kind of insistence. So you need to have a, a capsule persuasive sort of sales pitch uh, that can sort of get past people's uh, own sense of either boredom or distraction or whatever, and then make them listen more. Uh, but it, yeah, at some point it needs to become more more complex and uh, explicated. But but that the, the the issue is there is that you have to have something to grab people's attention first, which ideally should be somewhat uh, simplistic, at least uh, simplified in a way people can understand quickly. And Brendan, you and Matt write about uh, what uh, this kind of cultural hegemony that liberals have. So, Brendan, uh, what explains liberals' practical cultural hegemony if they lose elections, are generally loathed, even by those on the left they say they represent, uh, for their militarism and neoliberalism? If nobody likes liberals, why do they so dominate culture? Well, I suppose that's probably a, a, a really, uh, to, to use your word, complex uh, history. But essentially... I mean, most people accept that there are um, just some baseline, you know, humanitarian uh, principles that need to be reflected in in art in, in the 20th and 21st century. And, you know, liberals having ascended to positions of power in studios and in, you know, I mean, any given uh, sector of entertainment, um, they are, you know, the, the if you like... Uh, uh, the idea that the ruling class's ideology will, will be the reigning ideology. Well, in entertainment, the liberals are, are the ruling class, and so they certainly have, you know, uh, the, the right isn't totally wrong that they have, uh, that their amorphous um, uh, politics are, are, are basically in each movie you see, or in a lot of them. But that's just a, that's just a plane that is fully detached from actual political power. And what we try to say in the book is that um, while while culture isn't meaningless, um, people have sort of flipped the general causality uh, these days, and especially a lot of liberals. They have thought that if we can just become more culturally dominant, which as we point out, and you and you just said they already are, we can somehow change hearts and minds, or or just get people from their TVs to the voting booth, or something like that. And that's just not how we understand politics or material reality to influence people at all. It's the other way around. You need to condition, you need to change people's conditions uh, uh, rather than change their aesthetic tastes if you really want them to, to join up with you. You write, uh, Matt, of course, you write that uh, it was once said by the uh, great political satirist and cocaine enthusiast Andrew Breitbart that politics is downstream from culture. We're peeing in the same gutter. How are Breitbart and Chapo similar, Matt? <laughs> I mean, in the sense that they make people who prize a, a certain dead consensus sort of politics drop monocles out of their heads, but that's really it. We don't have a lot to do with, 
lot in common with Breitbart. The main thing is we're not funded by billionaire ghouls who are looking to stir up the sort of uh, farm fresh uh, racism in order to cloak their kleptocratic agenda. Brendan, to the question, where has the left been? You reply, the answer is getting shot, arrested, deported, spied on, purged. Since socialist Marxists and left-wingers of all stripes were the only people challenging the hegemony of capitalism in the United States, they were targeted for harassment, intimidation, and death at all turns. The list of left-wing martyrs destroyed by state and right-wing vigilante violence reads like a who's who of activists in the labor and civil rights movements from Albert Parsons to Martin Luther King. Brendan, how much was the left simply killed off? And who can we blame? Who can we hold responsible for the killings of the left's leadership? Well, I mean, certainly back in the 60s uh, and and 30s and 40s, I guess I should say, the early or the the first half of the 20th century, bleeding a little bit after that, um, there was a genuine threat, it seemed, to the structural order of, of liberal capitalism. You know, in the 30s and 40s, you had communists organizing not only for labor rights, but for civil rights. And then, of course, as that as that fight progressed in the 60s, you had uh, black militant groups, um, other, you know, reflections of, of, of radical um, of, of radical militants uh, starting to take things seriously. And assassinations happen when people are when people in power are, ge- are genuinely scared and uh, th- they certainly spent a lot of time uh, knocking off a lot, as we say. I mean, everyone from um, MLK to labor leader or, or, or labor activists, and, and of course, stuff like that still happens in, in, in uh, other countries. Uh, you know, if you look at the history of, you know, um, uh, the automobile industry or, or even Coca-Cola, there's there's brutal subcontractors working on behalf of America to knock off people like that. But in America itself, that doesn't seem to happen a lot right now, although there, I would argue there are still some suspicious cases over the last couple of years um, within Black Lives Matter of people getting knocked off, maybe, uh, allegedly, possibly. Uh, but that, that happens when there's a threat. And I don't think people up on high really feel threatened yet um, by this resurgent left that we're, that we're talking about. So, um, you know, it, it certainly is true that, yeah, I, I think... I think that was a huge part of of the left um, uh, being being taken apart and becoming impotent. There was some infighting as well, but a lot of that infighting was also uh, a, an operation of the federal government to try and infiltrate them and cause problems and so so discord. So there's all kinds of ways in which in which there was a straightforward campaign to either kill or confuse a lot of dedicated people o- o- over those decades. Matt, you write that finding some happiness in this hell world is essential for your mental mental health, but it's not enough. No one would blame you for simply getting by, zoning out after work, ordering the occasional Grubhub delivery, and saving up for a PS4, but you'll still feel the dread. Fact is, there's no way to truly escape the anxiety and alienation, let alone the economic and ecological uh, catastrophes we're going to witness in our lifetimes. But can you find happiness... Matt, in this hell world without simply getting by? Is the only way to happiness doing whatever we can to ignore the hell world around us? Because it's kind of hard to tell people, sit down and enjoy, I'm going to tell you how awful things are. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that people feel, if not happiness, at least a sense of uh, control over their lives and uh, and a sense of uh, 
Renaissance is to feel like you're uh, building something in opposition to it. If you're if you're doing a sort of an act of to become a politically uh, involved and and influential person who is not just going to let it happen to you, you're going to take what degree you can control over uh, the contours of your life by trying to reach out uh, and make connections with other people uh, for the purpose of fixing things. Brendan, how successful has the so-called resistance been? How, what have been the successes they've had? What have been the losses they have? How would you analyze the success that the resistance has had so far? It's funny you, you asked that because I was about to say Matt's answer. I think resisting is actually quite a, it would be a great word to use, you know, because you do get a buzz from from resisting the system. But unfortunately, it's been co-opted by this basically like like a zombified uh, uh, Democratic Party or, or, or pro-Hillary contingents from the last election as, as their as their word. Um, I don't want to, I honestly, we, we knock the, the resistance people a lot. Uh, but but who we're really knocking are, are like the, the 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 pundits and the weird Twitter people who who uh, take up that banner. I'm not going to say that there's probably been some like very dedicated people in certain states who are you know pr- probably you know like middle aged you know v- very guilty um, suburbanites or 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 you know uh, middle class people who who believe in that resistance banner. And who have probably worked hard and, and, and taken a more politically active stance after Trump's victory. I, I don't really want to, you know, knock them. Um, but as to, as to the efficacy of what they're working toward, I don't really know. But I don't want to knock them or, or, or ridicule them. But yeah, the, the resistance, as far as the sort of um, more media and and uh, um, political elite of Democratic people who put that in their avatar, and then. I, I don't really know what they do. I guess go to some fundraisers or continue to take checks from the American, or the Center for American Progress. Uh, those people are just utter clowns, and um, I, I don't know if what they're doing is any less or more meaningful than uh, our podcast, uh, so I won't throw stones from a glass house. But I do find them to be just utterly just boring and gormless, and uh, we would all be a lot better off if we left behind that fake radical cry for action and and, and looked at something a little bit more concrete and real. We have been speaking with Matt Christman and Brendan James, co-authors of The Chapo Guide to Revolution, a manifesto against logic, facts, and reason. Find out more about Chapo Trap House at chapotraphouse.com. I've got one last question for you, but before I ask that question, I have a separate one for each one of you. Uh, Someone who works on your show... Uh, was once a producer on our show. Actually, actually, what he did on our show, as I remember, is he read Harry Potter while someone else ran the board and answered phones. He seemed more interested in the book than the show, which is fine. Uh, Has Chris Wade ever mentioned that he worked on This Is Hell to you? That's me. Uh, Yeah, yeah, he has, yeah. 
Though I wasn't too sure if he would have even brought it up because he kind of was like a ghost here. He was here for a little while and then disappeared and we never saw him again. So I was just kind of curious if you ever brought it up. All right, one last question for each one of you. Matt Chrisman and Brendan James, co-authors of The Chapo Guide to Revolution, A Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Uh, And our final question for all of our guests is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. They are both questions that are related to an email that or a message that we received on Facebook this week. Alexandra contacted us via Facebook, and she writes that she's concerned about you being on this week's show. She says, I'm super excited for the Chapo interview and happy you're getting Kushbaum, the smartest one in my opinion. I wanted to suggest that Chuck bring up their statements about the move bombing, though. I've heard a number of Chapo Trap House episodes and generally like what they have to say, but was pretty grossed out by their jokes regarding move, and they seriously alienated black radicals and even black non-radicals. It strikes me as a super unnecessary, tasteless, and divisive thing to joke about, and it just sucks when people are already trying to equate socialists with Bernie bros that they haven't been, haven't even addressed it or apologized, as far as I can tell. So that might even be a good question from hell, which it kind of is. But one of the commenters in a transcript of that joke that was posted online, one of the commenters posted, the worst part about this is... These guys make $10,000 a week doing this. So, Brendan, mm-hmm. my question from hell for you is, does Chapo Trap House really make $10,000 a week? <laughs> uh, I wish uh, that... Well, I'm not a part of the show anymore. Uh, I, I'm a co-author of the book. Um, so, uh, as far as I know, though, no, they do not make $10,000 a week. That's false. Oh, damn it, because um, then my next question was going to be, how do you make $10,000 a week? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know. I, I, I think there's probably lots of ways that we mentioned earlier uh, that are uh, morally uh, questionable that you could probably make that much cash. But no, that that is a that is a faulty statistic. Okay, and Matt, my question from hell for you is regarding that joke that you did about move. And I've had uh, past guests on our show, like Boots Riley, have been very upset about that joke. Uh, Matt, do you feel that you should apologize for the show for the joke, and should you ever? apologize for a joke? Uh, I kind of try not to apologize for jokes just because uh, I think the danger is it just becomes all-consuming because like the line is going to be at different places for different people. And I honestly could see a situation where we would end up having to apologize for basically every joke we did. And I, I, I don't want to kind of create that, uh, that, a precedent, but I do understand why people were upset by that specific joke, and I do regret that it happened. Well, Matt and Brendan, I really appreciate you being on the show this week. It is a very, very entertaining book, The Chapo Guide to Revolution, a Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. You can find out more about Chapo Trap House and the book by going to chapotraphouse.com. Follow Matt on Twitter at Kushbaum, that's with a C, and follow Brendan on Twitter at deep underscore beige. They co-wrote the book with Felix Biederman, Will Menneker, and Virgil, Texas. So thanks so much for being on our show this week. Thank you. Take care. This is hell where we put people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model. This is how black radicalism can save us all, and we'll find out how in a few minutes. When we speak with sociologist Kahinda Andrews, author of Back to Black, 
retelling black radicalism for the 21st century. Earlier today, I was calling him Kalinda because apparently I have a floater in one of my eyes that was putting an L in the middle of his name. That's sociologist Kahinda Andrews, and you can follow him on Twitter at Kahinda underscore Andrews. That's K-E-H-I-N. D-E. You can now become a supporter of This Is Hell via Patreon. If you become a regular Patreon supporter, not only will we show our appreciation by sending you some This Is Hell advertising stickers, you're going to get some other perks. One of the things that you'll be getting is an additional podcast of This Is Hell each and every week. On this week's pod, a Patreon podcast that you can hear right now by signing up to Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. This week we shared our November 15th, 2003 interview on the Toledo Blade series, Buried Secrets, Brutal Truths, which would earn our guest Michael Sala, along with his co-author Mitch Weiss, the 2004 Pulitzer Prize, as the Pulitzers n- noted for their powerful series on atrocities by Tiger Force, an elite U.S. Army platoon during the Vietnam War. And it's a fascinating story of Vietnam-era military injustice and war crimes that was published shortly after the U.S. invaded Iraq. Brought up all sorts of questions that still need to be answered when it comes to wartime, despite the fact that the public has been told time and time again about the potential for military abuse during conflict. I mean, what these soldiers did is horrifying, and what other soldiers did in standing up to the abuse was heroic. But the cover-up by the military makes the whole thing even worse. It really is a must-listen, but the only way you can hear that interview on a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation into military abuse during the Vietnam War that you've probably never heard of before is by signing up as a Patreon patron by going to patreon.com slash thisishell. That's patreon.com slash thisishell. Alex, did you share anything on Patreon that you wanted to mention this week? Uh, not yet. I'm set, I'm, I have like three interviews that I'm trying to decide for the bonus one that I'm going to put out tomorrow, though. So uh, look for something good happening for anyone who subscribes at any level. Oh, you know, no, I did. I, I shared uh, the live stream of us trying to do the Patreon podcast in our studio, uh, which had some successes and some failures. That's right. If you actually want to hear... Uh, see the live stream when it happens but if you want to hear or watch us do the actual first sound test and our first show from the new studios you're going to have to sign up to patreon.com slash this is hell to see that and we're going to be doing all of our shows live streaming from now on all of our Patreon podcasts live streaming from now on as well as from our new studios so I want to thank all of our Patreon subscribers because if it wasn't for you uh, those places that a studio wouldn't exist and we couldn't be paying our bills to keep it existing right now and uh, we're going to do better in the future. That was our first time. It was a little bumpy, but uh, it was kind of fun. We want to thank those of you who have already signed up as Patreon supporters and the newest Patreon supporters, especially including Richard B., Dean T., Darcy P., Gregory M., Becky L., and you can join them and another 263 listeners in supporting This Is Hell by becoming a Patreon subscriber at thisishell.com slash support. So show your support. And, uh, you know, we'll get you those subvertising stickers and you get uh, gifts, free gifts for lower donation levels. So all you have to do is go to thisishell.com or go to patreon.com slash thisishell to sign up for Patreon. And then if you want to see what all the gifts are, go to thisishell.com and click on support. On next week's Patreon podcast, well, thanks to all of our listeners, as I was saying, we'll be live streaming as we did this week from our new yet still incomplete studios, all because of your support. We live streamed audio and video this week for our Patreon patrons. So if you want to actually see me do This Is Hell, 
you got to sign up as a Patreon patron at patreon.com slash this is hell. And I haven't decided what I'm going to do yet for next week. So who knows? This week, not only did we feature an interview from our archives that's currently unavailable elsewhere, but we also took our first phone call at the news studio, and it was with Jeff Dorchin. But again, you can only hear our new live streaming audio and video Patreon podcast by subscribing to us via Patreon at patreon.com. Slash This Is Hell, and we want to thank everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years. Your support will be needed more than ever. Okay, let's read your answers to this week's question from Hell, which is, what will be the final post made? What will the final post made on this planet say? What will the final post made on this planet say? All replies get read right on air right now. Our favorite wins: the Chapo Guide to Revolution, which we just discussed with two of its co-authors. Again, the question from Hell is: What will the final post made on this planet say? Leave your response right now at our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/ThisIsHellRadio, and you still have one more opportunity to win. Alex, you have all the answers yeah. to this week's question from Hell. I got to make it fast because there's a ton of them. Nick right. E says Yahoo, Yeehaw, Wahoo, and then posted the YouTube video of that guy on the bomb from yeah. that movie. Sebastian M. says, hashtag YOLO. Dan O. says, we really owned the libs. (laughs) Emma A. says, so long and thanks for all the fish. Ryan K. says, we've got the biggest, most beautiful nukes in the entire world ever. Everyone is saying this. Believe me. Here, I'll show you. Jake S. says, Trump tweets, you'll never take me alive, Mueller. Hashtag witch hunt. Hashtag MAGA. Hashtag crooked Hillary. (laughs) Then proceeds to detonate all of our nukes to create a hellish wasteland. Anthony P. says, looks like Voltar, conqueror of the Northern Wastes, is having a normal one. <laughs> said that. That was Anthony P. Zach E. says, just got to the end, just got my end of the world shirt from Amazon. What do you all think? Amazon Nation, fully automated global fire capitalism, end of the world. Those are all hashtags. Chris L. says, nothing less than the purifying fires of the apocalypse consuming the earth will get me to stop posting. Eric W. says, it was a good run. At least we made all our shareholders a lot of money. <laughs> Robert H. says... By the book. The Chapo reference. MJG says, You have meddled with the primal forces of nature and you will atone. Which is from that guy talking about that thing in that movie. <laughs> Joseph D. Actually, I, I, I love Network. Uh, Joseph D. says, So much for transhumanism. Anthony Alexander H. says, BRB. Stephen S. says, Libertarian socialism is an oxymoron. Still debunked. Figgy N. says, Send Bobs and Vagine. Uh, which is a meme to which Eric... Eric W. says, yeah, this joke is racist AF. And then Figgy posted two shocked emojis, so we all learned something there. Uh, Nick A. says, it will be some post-post version of a post saying, I bet people will even argue over this post with a photo of the physical post, but a post-post-era post. Cyril C. says, I'm drowning. Jessica P. says, goodbye, cruel world. Court H. says, go on, come town. Aranthos B. says, feeding of humans prohibited. Uh, Isla C says, like and share this post to save the planet. Let's make it viral. <laughs> Who said that? <laughs> oh, geez, that was very good. Uh, that was y- uh, Isla C. Uh, Laddie O says, we came, we saw, we crapped the bed. Laura E says, I can't take this post seriously with all the grammatical mistakes. <laughs> Lawrence C says, I told you I was ill. Benjamin C says, always look on the bright side of life. Scott M says, Chuck has marked himself safe in the collapse of civilization. <laughs> uh, Ma T says, still Sanders. Dan L says, one, two, three, four, five. That's amazing. I have the same password on my laptop. John K says, winner, winner, chicken dinner. <laughs> Ma T says, the climate's always been changing. <laughs> Steve T says, 
shares the new re- new sources shares new sources say Russia may have played a role in the global collapse of civilization, and then the source of that is NPR.org. Matt M says there really is a tweet for everything. James H says just an- outran a mushroom cloud. Fitspo slash always be running. Gene uh, B says uh, a string of letters that mean nothing because I'm sure they've collapsed on their keyboard. Harold J says fake news, fake news. Happy Labor Day. Mark o- Mark A says rosebud. Well, the last post on this world say Astrid N says so ends the age of consequences. Chris M says hey what does this big red button do? Dennis H says asteroid fake news. Martin S says see. Louis D says planet death is fake news. <laughs> Eva M says this is a message from your over alien overlords while you were posting your lives away on social media we brokered a deal with Mr. Zuckerberg he's exchanged all of your brains for one of our small moons on sector 9 where he plans to build a new smaller hopefully more successful civilization from three stem cells one iPhone and a monkey McGiver and Elon Musk are coming with him good night and good or good luck and good night over and out. <laughs> Mark A.S. says, Hillary wants to take my guns. Aaron B. says, "Some hopefully some variation of LOL. Jack B. says, we're sorry you're having trouble. Goodbye. Aaron B. says, don't forget to go to our Patreon page and donate for special perks. Like? Like? Adam A. says, Psh, don't make much of this whole new speaking directly to each other IRL fad. Online communication isn't going anywhere. Uh, Warren L. says, R-O-F-L-A-R-M, rolling on the floor laughing and attracting the radioactive mutants. Tony D says, you people were all a bunch of idiots. Maggie C says, could be worse. <laughs> Grant G says, well, that was a mistake. Clive H says, human history in one tweet. Those who knew how to live in this world were destroyed by those who didn't. The end. Adam E or Adam M says, Bernie would have won. Gorilla G says, Hal, Hal, are you still there? I said, open the pod bay. Never mind. I'm going to go read a book. Camillo P says, ecologists hate her. This one weird trick discovered uh, by a busy mom will save the planet. Well, the last post ever say, Don H says, stay alive, you bitches. <laughs> Sarah M says, told you this would happen if you impeached me. Aaron D says, Croaton. Colin J says, but her emails. <laughs> Fabio L says, O-W-O, what's this? John T says, Mary, a mother from Toronto, says, I made 15000 last month from the comfort of my own bunker, and you can too. What you need, a computer, an internet collection, uh, connection, and a food source not yet contaminated by the surface dwellers. <laughs> Doug G says, the final post of the planet will be, please share this resistance guide on how to resist President Mike Pence's third term, hashtag resistance. John M says, but what's this long face about, Mr. Starbuck? Wilt thou not chase the white whale? Art not game for Moby Dick? <laughs> Nice Melville G- Gintaris D says they came from behind. Doug M <laughs> says, oops. Max I says, oh, he posted a link to a Twitter account that just shares the last statements of uh, prisoners who were executed. Uh, it is grim. Stephen D says, I don't get it. Mary, uh, Marty P says, yes, uh, we are about to be the only man and woman on the planet. And no, I still will not sleep with you. <laughs> Craig S says, I told you I was ill. Brian D, uh, but her emails. Greg M. I told you I was ill. Damn, that's a popular one. Uh, Oliver J says, for sale, one medium-sized Class M planet. Spares and repairs no longer supports life. <laughs> Joanne C says, Mother Nature, finally they're gone. <laughs> Mickey M says, I'm the king of the world. Dimitri H says, actually, if you ever had read about rational choice theory, you would have understood there is nothing to worry about. Yeah. Pete V says, having a great time. Wish you were here. Roland A says, we should have listened to the indigenous people they war- that warned our ways would lead to ruin. Jeffy says, don't flush me. Hal, no. Steve S. says, when all this is said and done, there is nothing left to say or do. What will be the last <laughs> post ever? What will be the last post of this damn thread? 
Emma L says, probably some motivational quote saying that everything will be okay if you think positive and keep smiling. <laughs> Chris S says, tip to the other planets out there, do not piss off the trees. Patrick M says, this is hell. <coughs> Ashwin R says, triggered much, snowflakes? Andrew T says, here come the schnauzers. Matt M says, enter, control, shift, delete to reboot. Enter, control, shift, delete to reboot. Somebody, anybody, please. And KCC says, thank you, Chuck. Oh, that's sweet. All right, so let's see. First of all, my response to the question from Mel, what will the last, the final post made on this planet say? Zombies! All right, so let's see. What should be the winner for this week's question from Hell to get the Chapo book on revolution? I like Anthony P's suggested about Voltar. Uh, Isla C saying making sure this post to save the planet. Aaron B's reference to Patreon because it's something that references the show. Uh, Maggie C saying it could be worse. Ashwin uh, M saying uh, trigger much snowflakes. Uh, I'm going to go with Isla C and making sure this post to save the planet. That will be the final post that will ever be shared on our planet. That makes this week's winner, Isla C. We'll be getting in contact with you to get your mailing address so we can send you the Chapo book. This is how office hours happen this and every Wednesday from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. The bar downstairs from the This Is Hell office and hopefully soon our completed studio as well. Drop by the bar any Wednesday evening. Hang out. Chat me up. I'll give you a free book related to the show just for dropping by. That is, if I remember... Come on in, say hello, watch me drink, get a free book, and some This Is Hell advertising stickers so you can subvert public advertising with the words This Is Hell. The cell office hours, Wednesday, 6 to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. We had a big crowd on Wednesday, but I was so freaked out on antibiotics and other things. I don't remember everyone who was there, so here it goes. Uh, kind of foggy memories. I kind of remember Alex and Leo and Brian and Wally and Joel. I think I ate oysters. I, I don't remember. I remember there was a gyro involved. Anyway, you can talk me up and get free books and stickers at This is Hell Office Hours every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon. But tomorrow, tomorrow... Sunday, September 2nd, for the drop-by and join me for the closing of the second annual This Is Hell art show called This Is Art, which is happening tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Meet the artists who participated in this week's or this year's show and see all their work one last time tomorrow afternoon, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the gallery above Carrie's Lounge, again, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. This year's art includes... Luke Bracken's Wooden Assemblages, Ian Lance's Mixed Media Works, Julie Murphy's Etchings and Drawings, Laddie Odom's Handmade Kites Hanging from the Ceiling, Ron Pollard's We Kill Everything Photography Project, and the Pornographic Portraiture of Vicky Zhiguli, in that they are portraits of porn stars. That's tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios Art Gallery above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. You can find out more about this event by going to our event page on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. 
Coming up on This Is Hell, our need for black radicalism, and Jeff does some racial thinking. That stuff, plus a whole bunch of people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell and sharing the show online. Maybe we'll get to Twist Off Knowledge. Maybe we'll get back into listener feedback. And, of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Yes, another end of the world is possible. This is hell. There is an alternative. And it is black radicalism. Here to explain how black radicalism can save us all. Sociologist Kahinde Andrews is author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. Kahinde is uh, Associate Professor of Sociology at the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University in England, and he developed Europe's first Black Studies undergraduate degree. You can follow Kahinde on Twitter at Kahinde Andrews, Kahinde underscore Andrews. That's K-E-H-I-N-D-E. Welcome to This Is Hell. Having me on. It's great to have you on the show. This is a fascinating book. You write about a protest in the wake of the killings by police of Philando uh, Castile here in the United States in Minnesota and Alton Sterling in New Orleans, but not any protest, a protest in Birmingham, England, as you described the second city of Britain in the 21st century. And the picture tells us how little things have changed in the last 50 years and speaks to the global nature of racism. What has been the reaction in England to the explosion of police killings here in the United States, finally being challenged as unwarranted and unnecessary? Police uh, shootings in the U.S. even being charged as crimes for manslaughter or even murder. What has been the reaction in England? Well, the reaction in England has been as though these were our relatives who were killed. I think that's something that surprised people here. Because, you know, in England, police don't carry guns, so there's very few people who are actually killed by the police. Although you are still about three times more likely to die in custody of the police if you are black in Britain. Um, but what happened, particularly with um, Fernando Castile, and when you saw it on Facebook, and you saw, like, the man bleeding out, there was a mass reaction. The Black Lives Matter movement, thousands of people came out to the street. And I think that surprised people, because they're like, well, surely that's just a American thing. Why are British black people getting getting upset but it really does tell you about the global nature of the connections of black communities and something that happens in america it happens to us here equally in the same way so how global is that fight against racism how international is it and to what extent do we make a mistake especially here in the united states when we only see racism as a battle within our own national borders whether that's the fight against racism either in the u.s or even in britain because making international connections was a big part in the u.s black nationalism of the early 20th century and played a role within the black power movement in the 60s in the u.s as well what do we miss when we see the issue of police violence against blacks as only a national issue and not a global issue um, well, Malcolm X, and Malcolm X is quoted a lot in the book, and probably I'll mention his name a few times today, but Malcolm's famous for saying a number of things, one including, uh, there's no such thing as an American problem, there is a world problem. And in a sense, what happens in America gets picked up by people across the world. There is probably more of a national politics in America where the killings of people in Europe aren't that important, or some of the things that are happening outside of the American borders aren't that important. Um, and that really is a problem, because what the nation-state does by, by thinking about this nationally, it really restricts the kind of politics you can have. So if you think about the problem as an American problem, 
then you think, well, what can Congress do? How can we get reform? How can we how can we get this access? How do we get a black president? And what you realize, hopefully, in the last 50 years is that there is no national solution to America's race problem. The, everything that happens in America is because of a global system of racism which affects all of us. And actually, we need to think not about how do we get better access in our nation states, but how do we end the whole system which even creates the nation state in the first place. I can hear those who are on the right already if they saw protests in England over police shootings here in the United States that left uh, black citizens dead. I can see those on the right here in the United States referring to those protests as anti-American. Are the protests against police violence in the U.S. against blacks, are those protests inherently anti-United States? Unfortunately, they should be inherently anti-United States because America is the problem, not just America. Britain is also the problem. France is also the problem. All these uh, Western nation states are actually the problem. And actually, what I argue for quite strongly is that our protests have to be anti-American. I mean, again, another quote from Malcolm X. I've never seen no American dream. I've only seen witnessed the American nightmare. So America is the problem. Unfortunately, actually, I, I think you'll find that those protests in America against the police aren't at all anti-American. In fact, what they're asking for is for the American judiciary to, te- to treat people fairly, for the American police to treat people fairly. And that's actually one of my criticisms. The problem is America. The problem isn't just the police. So, you know, when we think about racism globally, and let's just think about it here in the United States and in uh, England as well, we think about the United States as being a very racist country, but we don't necessarily think about uh, how racist England is, and we don't really think about the police-citizen relationship in uh, England because, uh, you know, they don't have guns, as you were pointing out. The police don't have guns, and so the level of violence can't be as great, as high, and as deadly as it is here in the United States. But all of that put aside... How racist is life in England toward black citizens? Can we say it is any more or less racist than the U.S.? How would you compare them? How can you best describe the racism that you face as a black person in England? Uh, Well, I think one of the things uh, I usually say about America is that America is just a more extreme version of the racism we face here. So like I was saying before, the police don't carry guns in the U.K., so we don't. Uh, People aren't killed as much by the police. Um, In fact, you're probably you're actually more likely to be you more black people in Britain's prisons are higher are more overrepresented given our numbers in the population than African Americans are if you can believe that but we don't incarcerate anywhere near as many people in Britain so it's not as big a problem numbers wise if you look at things like poverty etc cetera, etc cetera, America is a perfect way to see how racism in Britain plays out because it's a far more extreme example and American racism is just a version of British racism I mean Britain founded America and just carried on that whole system of racism so in Britain, you find really the same kind of thing, um, far less likely to be employed, far less likely to get uh, good jobs, far less likely to be middle class, more likely to be arrested, more likely to be killed by the police, more likely to kill each other as well. So all the problems that you find in America, you find in Britain just on a different scale, which is why I'm saying this is a global problem. Our, our problem is the same problem, and that is a global system of racism, uh, which is anti-black no matter which country you reside in. You write that in both America, uh, both Britain and America, the battles and hard-fought victories for recognition and legislation have lulled us into a false sense of progress. Landmark gains for civil and voting rights in America and race relations bills in Britain 
opened up the dreams of inclusion and equality for black so-called citizens. The sad reality is that 50 days after these apparent gains, racism is as embedded in the fabric of society as ever, coded into the DNA of the system. Now, those laws protecting civil rights are still in place, yet racism persists. Has racism proved to be impervious to legal reform, or has institutionalized racism simply adapted to civil rights reforms to the point of circumventing civil rights in order to continue racist institutions in a racist state? Well, because I think, hopefully, 50 years after these gains, and in the UK we've had uh, civil rights gains as well. In fact, in the UK we have the Racial Relations Act in 1965, a very similar time to you have the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act in America. And the, the promise was that once you get access, once you get reform, once you get these laws, uh, then we can stop racism. But I think what we should have found, and what we definitely should have known back then but should know now, is that that's not how racism works. Racism is in the DNA. It's in the organization. It's in the political economy. There is no law that can be passed. It doesn't matter if you have a black president. In fact, under uh, President Barack Obama, basically every indicator of social life got worse for African Americans. Um, so this should be telling us that there's no way to reform racism out of the system. The only way to get rid of racism is to get rid of the system, which is why we need radical revolutionary answers. As you were just saying, things got worse under Obama, unbelievably. We had award-winning author Carol Anderson on our show back in 2016 for her book White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, where she argues that anytime there is a slight advancement or any advancement of civil rights for African Americans, it is immediately met by white rage, by blowback against those rights. They have been hard fought for and won, and immediately those rights start to be slowly weakened and undermined. To what degree did things depreciate for blacks in the United States under Obama because of blowback against not only rights won, but in this case, the election of a black person as president of the United States? Does the depreciation of black life under Obama reveal how racist white America is and how powerful that racism is? I mean, it should do. I think I mean, Obama is a classic example of a black man in a white house. And the presidency is what the presidency is. And there is really nothing he could have done to make things better. But if, if you actually look at the, the numbers, so the one number that gets thrown back at me a lot when I make this argument is the, um, employment. I mean, uh, employment got a bit better for African-Americans under Obama. But then when you look at poverty, that actually rose. So what you're finding is that people have jobs. And there's a book by Kianga Yamata Taylor called, I think it's from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. And some crazy statistics like 50% of all African-Americans who have jobs in New York uh, work in fast food restaurants. And I believe it's about a third of all African-Americans in Chicago that have jobs, have jobs in fast food restaurants. So it's the kind of, you get work, but it's the kind of work that doesn't pay, which is why food stamp usage absolutely ballooned for African-Americans under Obama. So that should be telling you, look, you have a black president, you have the pinnacle of access to the system, and everything's still getting worse. And then worse still, in many ways, Donald Trump is the result of Obama. I don't, I don't I think I'll overstate this. Without Barack Obama, Donald Trump probably never gets um, elected, because that is part of the blowback against having this black president. You write one of the most frustrating rewrites of history is the common description of Malcolm X as a civil rights leader. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, Malcolm was perhaps the fiercest critic of the civil rights movement, its tactics, and its leaders. He famously called the showpiece 1963 March on Washington a farce, 
denouncing it as a circus with clowns and all. Though he and the figure he is most tied to, Martin Luther King, were active at the same time they only ever met once, very briefly. We should not be surprised given Malcolm's public scorn for King, including calling him a 20th century or modern-day Uncle Tom. And there are those who are upset at the way in which King is depicted, quoting his less militant, less class-oriented and anti-poverty and anti-military stances regularly in the establishment media, but not his more class-oriented, more anti-poverty stances. To what extent does that whitewashing of black liberation history lead to the kind of depreciation we not only saw during the Obama administration, but as blowback against civil rights since the advances of the civil rights era, does whitewashing black history undermine civil rights sustainability? Oh, of course. I mean, I think I, I, Malcolm is a huge critic of civil rights. I'm a very big critic of civil rights. But the civil rights that were given in the Martin Luther King, particularly that were given by the movies and the history books, is that kind of march on Washington, take a little bit of the, I, I wish the black black children and white children can play together, etc. But that really wasn't what Martin Luther King was about. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, stood for anti-poverty. I mean, if you actually look at the poor people's campaign that he wanted to start when he was killed, uh, that would have tied down. It was actually, it was essentially um, direct action, taking 300 people to Washington to literally lock it down um, in a way that the March on Washington never could. And that's kind of just completely mis- misrepresented, misunderstood. In fact, the idea that I think it was 69% of African Americans believe that Obama represented the completion of, Mal- of Martin Luther King's dream, which is such a distortion of Martin Luther King's dream uh, that it's crazy. I mean, uh, King wasn't about being elected or about being president. King was about equality, not just for black people, but also for poor people. And again, Obama doesn't represent any of those. And then I think on the other side of that, uh, Malcolm X is represented as being this kind of demagogue who has no political program. He hated white people. He's just angry and it was good for a speech. And that's all. Um, but again, that's also a distortion. But I would say, though, that as they're still very, very different, right? So there is this other distortion which is happening now, which is Malcolm X was becoming more of a civil rights leader. They just worked together. They had the same basic goal, but different methods. That's entirely untrue. Uh, Martin Luther King believed that America could be redeemed. Malcolm did not. Malcolm very firmly foresaw all of the problems with civil rights legislation, with reform, and basically called America a bloody George wolf that could never be reformed, and that's why we need a revolution. So even though they're King's more militant than we give him credit for. Um, he's still a liberal reformist and not about the politics of revolution. Is that misrepresentation, is that even the conflating of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, is that kind of whitewashing of black liberation history, is, do you think that that is a deliberate attempt by the media to undermine uh, black liberation to undermine the fight against racism? Or is it just more a reflection of the subtle and pernicious racism that infects media in general, that it isn't an intent, it's, it's an unintended consequence of the racism that they embrace? Um, no, I think it's, I don't know if it's a conspiracy necessarily, but it's certainly, it's certainly, it's certainly on purpose. It serves a particular reason for why you do that. So, Malcolm, present, Malcolm represents, and the politics of Malcolm represents, which broadly I would call black radicalism, represents a true alternative um, to the system, a revolutionary alternative, which people would get behind. And Malcolm was assassinated largely because of it. 
And that's very dangerous. And so what you, you can't, you, one of the things you can't do, you can't say don't support Malcolm because people love Malcolm. Malcolm's got this following, et cetera, et cetera. But what you can do is say, well, support this version of Malcolm, which isn't that dangerous, which is more reformist, which can go on T-shirts, which can go on stamps, where you can just, you know, carry on with your life but embrace Malcolm in kind of piecemeal ways. And that's the vision that we're being given. And you have to kind of say it must be sort of a conspiracy because when Malcolm was, what Malcolm left behind when he was, when he was killed was the organization of Afro-American Unity, an organization that barely anybody knows anything about, even though at the time he was writing the um, autobiography of Malcolm X, this big seller that most people have read, this huge book, um, and it's not in the book. Like, how, how, does, how does the book that Malcolm's writing, when he's killed, uh, not mention his political legacy, which is very clear, very plain, very added. It's, it's taken out of that book. And I think, for, so back in the 60s, you can see there's a very clear um, shaping of Malcolm's legacy to take away the kind of politics and the relevance, to make it either anti-white demagogue or this kind of, yeah, he kind of was the same side as uh, Martin Luther King, because that is, a, that is a way to control the masses and to take people away from uh, black revolution. You describe the differences between Malcolm and Martin. You write Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement represent a liberal tradition in black politics. Liberals acknowledge the problems of racial inequality, but put them down to a lack of access to the system. So black people are poorer because we do not have equal access to the job market. In order to get equal access, it is seen as necessary to reform the system through legislation that outlaws discriminatory practices. A barrier to these laws being passed is that we also lack access to political power. And so it is necessary to get black politicians elected to bring about reform. This is the logic that made 69% of African Americans believe that uh, Obama's election meant that King's dream had been fulfilled. It is also logic that leads to campaigns for more black police officers, chiefs, and commissioners. So is the black liberal tradition then no different from the white liberal tradition? Uh, not really. I mean, in the sense that it still believes that America... So the liberal tradition basically says the system is... The system itself is not the problem. America's fine, Britain's fine. It's all basically fine. The problem is that black people or women or any group who's underrepresented don't have access to it. And once we get access to it, uh, police chiefs or elected officials, et cetera, et cetera, then we'll be able to change it from, from the inside, if you like. Um, and then again, it's, just a, it's, 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 it's a very powerful tradition. It's a tradition that's existed, but it's a tradition that's basically wrong. Racism doesn't work like that. The institutions are racist. And when you have black spaces and white spaces, they just produce exactly the same outcomes as the white people who would have been there. It really makes no difference whether you have uh, black police officers or not. The outcome will be the same. So to what extent, then, is liberalism a challenge to white supremacy? How much does black liberalism challenge white privilege? It doesn't. I mean, I think that's the, I think that's the point, is that black liberalism doesn't, right? One of the things that, it's in the book, but I'm working on that and some more for the next book, is that one of the, the ways that we kind of misunderstand what whiteness is. Whiteness isn't um, just a kind of idea or concepts or people people be having privilege. Whiteness is in the political economy. The basis of our political economy is whiteness. It is not a coincidence that Africa is the poorest continent on the globe and the white places are the richest. That's, that's the way it's designed, right? So you can't challenge whiteness through ideas or through reform. You can only challenge whiteness by removing the system which is based on, which is our political and economic system. So no, liberalism is fundamentally based on the principles of whiteness, whether it has black faces or, or white faces uh, leading the charge. 
also, you also argue that radicalism and extremism are not the same. You think that this is a myth, that's a conflation that keeps happening over and over again, this idea that radicalism is inherently violent. How are radicalism and extremism opposites? And are radicalism and extremism any more opposite, any more antithetical than conservatism or being a reactionary and extremism? Um, yeah, so radicalism and extremism are the opposite because, um, so extremism, extremism is when you take the central beliefs or ideas of any system and you take them to the extreme, far past their any useful point. So, for example, um, what we're seeing with uh, Muslim fundamentalists, they're taking Islam, they're just taking it way too far. The same way you see that with the KKK or Christian fundamentalists or the Nazis. You believe in the basic principles, but you take it too far, right? Radicalism is the opposite of that. Radicalism is you look at the basic principles of any society and you say, they're terrible, let's not do that. So communism, for example, says we don't want to do capitalism because capitalism is terrible. So in a sense, you can't have radical Islam because radical Islam would no longer be Islam, right? It would reject all the principles of Islam and be something else. So radicalism calls for an overthrow, overturning, whereas extremism doesn't. Extremism just calls for more of what we currently have, effectively. And those are two very, very different concepts. And in fact, in many ways, the rise of extremism, particularly Islamic extremism, we're going to call it Islamic extremism, is because of the decline of radicalism. Because So you look at somewhere like Africa, and why do you have Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab? Uh, it's not because people are crazily devout Muslims. It's because people have been have their livelihoods killed off by the West, and the only people really fighting back against against the West are the extremists, right? Everybody else is kind of on this liberal democracy, etc., etc. approach. And there's one group of people who are fighting off against, fighting the fighting the system violently. Um, and that's why there has been this conflation of violence and radicalism. But violence and radicalism is it's the, it's the wrong way. To, you don't define radicalism with violence. Rad, radicalism is defined by the 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 aim to overturn the system, which often obviously involves violence, but it isn't defined by violence. But extremism is only defined by violence because it takes the principles of society to the extreme. Right. And that's what you say. You know, we even people on the right and left, Democrats and Republicans, they both refer to radical Islam. And you say if that there was such a thing, then it would be challenging the Islamic order. Extremist Islam is what you see uh, people participating in. So is radicalism and extremism, are they competing in a zero-sum game? That is, the less radical liberation movements there are, the more likely it is for extremism to rise? I would think so. I mean, I think it's not a coincidence that... Um, Africa is a perfect example. There, were, there was no Islamic fundamentalism on the African continent when there was Pan-Africanism, when there was um, Marxist movements for liberation, when there, was, when there were real radical movements for change. You didn't have Islamic fundamentalism. When those movements have disappeared and there's nothing else left, and there's just poverty and liberalism, well, then the people who the people who feel the brunt of the system the worst understand what the problem is. They understand who their problem, who their enemy is, and when they have no tools to fight back against it, they get drawn into what's available and what seems like okay, the, the, you know, it's Bin Laden and it's, the, it's ISIS and it's Muslims who are fighting against the West, so we're going to join that fight against the West. I have no doubt that is the, the cause for why you see the spread of uh, fundamentalism across Africa. And I would imagine it's the same um, in the Middle East. If you have radical alternatives, people would be would be those open movements. They would not be in these um, extremist Islamic sects. 
And you write about nonviolence and violence as far as reactions to the system. What explains why the public seems to be so offended by the idea of violently overthrowing the violent system that we live under? Or do we simply not realize the degree to which the system we live within is indeed violent to ourselves, if not deadly? Uh, yeah, so I think that one of the things I do talk about in the book um, is the idea that whiteness is a psychosis, and that's that's the only real way to understand it. So whiteness isn't just a, and that's not to say white people are mentally ill, and well, psychosis of whiteness applies equally to black and Asian people as well. Um, but he's saying that it's, it's a way of thinking which the point of it is to delude you to what it takes to keep you in your privilege. Like the West, the West is the most violent system that's ever existed. By none, by by a distance. I mean, you're talking billions of people killed. Uh, people killed today, like a child dies every ten seconds because they have no access to food. I mean, that's violence, right? Um, it's always been underpinned by violence. This this literally kills people all the time, right? And that violence is necessary so that we can have the prosperity that we that we enjoy. So we, but if we have to acknowledge that that violence, to acknowledge that we literally have blood on our hands every single day from the things that we love to enjoy would mean that we have to change things, right? So that's the point of whiteness, is to delude us into thinking that things are okay. So we can't accept just how much violence on a daily basis uh, we benefit from. Uh, so there's this kind of pretense that the West is enlightened, it's based on progressive ideals, blah, blah, blah. And then so the idea that you would counteract the West with violence is then seen as, oh, well, that's, that's, that's crazy. No, we need more uh, democracy, violence, blah, 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 blah. Where we don't actually... We, it's, it's basically impossible for people in the West to really understand um, just how important violence is to uh, to all of us. I include myself in this, to all of our prosperity. You're right. There are very few radical politics for a reason, because revolution overturns everything we have come to accept. It is a lot to expect people to risk however little or much we have managed to claim to mobilize for a world that offers no promises, only the dream of liberation. It's Far more rational to try to improve what we have to convince ourselves that this system that so reviles us can be redeemed. But we have to understand that there is no prospect of racism being eradicated from capitalism. One cannot exist without the other. Racism is the system. Why can't we have capitalism without racism? Because capitalism is fundamentally built on racism. I mean, if there's any honest accounting of, of where we are today, the system that we currently have, all classified, et cetera, et cetera, is based on the original sin of, of racism, right? Uh, what defines the West? The West is defined by when people in Europe, looking for resources, et cetera, et cetera, go out to different parts of the world, they bump into America, the Americas, uh, commit a genocide that kills 80%, 80% of the natives from North America all the way down to South America. Once they've killed and exhausted us, the natives, they turn to Africa, enslave millions of people, kill millions upon millions upon millions of people building a uh, system of slavery. Um, and then you have colonialism, and it's slavery, colonialism, and that genocide, which is the wealth and the basis to have capitalism. Capitalism does not exist without that. Right? It literally doesn't exist. So all of the great institutions, um, even the class divisions within the West, are all built on that original set of, of racism. Making it worse, it's not like it stops, not like it ends. Oh, we did that, and then we moved on and have a different system. Uh, through colonialism, through neocolonialism, today, the, the exploitation of labor in Asia, the exploitation of um, resources in Africa, 
Today, the system is still built on the idea that black life in particular, but non-white life in general, is worth significantly less. It's super exploited. Of those child that dies every 10 seconds, not a single one of them is white. Uh, so we still have a political economy which is based on killing, reaping, the exploitation uh, from the black and brown. The cap- You just can't discuss capitalism separate from racism. It is the system. You write, black radicalism promotes violence only for self-defense and liberation, because black radicalism, as you point out in your book, is often equated with violence, and you say that that's not the case. You write, black radicalism promotes violence only for self-defense and liberation, and recognizes that the liberal forces of oppression are defined by violence. The hypocrisy of defining political violence as the possession of the radicals or the extremists is truly frightening. Liberalism, upon which the West has built, is the most violent system that has ever existed on the planet. Does nonviolence then promote, if not reinforce, a system of violence? Um, yeah, and this is where the violence, nonviolence debate uh, gets it wrong. When people are arguing that nonviolence is nonsensical, they're not arguing that we should just go out, pick up guns or whatever and be violent. That's not, that's not the argument. The argument is that nonviolence is nonsensical. Because if you, any time you're involved in a nonviolent struggle, Anytime you're saying we're not going to quit violence, what you're saying is you're not going to have revolution. What you're saying is you're going to have to be defined by uh, the powers that be and what essentially the status quo. And you're going to those people who have the power through violence, I would point out, to ask for change, reform, etc., etc. So that's what Malcolm's saying and all these other people are saying, the Panthers are saying. It just makes no sense to say that you, you want to be nonviolent. Now, the reality is that revolutions are violent things. They have to, I mean, you were talking about, I said, the most violent system that's ever existed. The reason that Pan-Africanism died or the Black Revolution died in the 60s, it wasn't because people didn't have the right ideas, it's because they were killed. I mean, they literally killed, like assassinated uh, through violence. And so the idea that you could overturn this system without violence is, is nonsensical. But that doesn't mean that what we're arguing for is that it's now the time to go and pick up the guns. In fact, that's the worst time. You know, who needs to go Guns are probably more of a problem there today for us um, than they are for, for white people. So I don't think no, nobody's arguing that now, right now, is the time to go pick up a gun and commit violence. But it's saying that you can't take violence off the table if you're serious about black liberation. I'm kind of conflating two questions here because we're a little bit against the clock. But uh, why is blackness so important politically to black radicalism? And what uh, do you mean by thinking black? Why is that so important? Um, so, I mean, blackness is, that's the, that's the glue. That's the thing that connects us together. Uh, blackness, of all people, if, when, once I say I'm black and I'm connected to the African diaspora and all people of African descent, that means that my struggle is connected to the struggle of the three million children that die in South East Africa every year. And that's why it's radical, because it means you can't have a national analysis. It means I can't just get focused on black professors or black middle class or what's happening in Britain, because once I say I'm black, that means I'm connected to all black people across the world who are, in other parts of, the, parts of the world, the wretched of the earth. So that unity is absolutely important to kind of push us to make these kind of global revolutionary arguments. That's qu- one last question for you, Kahinde. We have been speaking with sociologist Kahinde Andrews, author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. 
He's associate professor of sociology in the School of Social Sciences at Birmingham City University in England. He developed Europe's first black studies undergraduate degree. He is director of the Center for Critical Social Research, founder of the Harambee Organization of Black Unity, and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. You can follow Kehinde on Twitter at Kehinde underscore Andrews. That's K-E-H-I-N-D underscore Andrews. Andrews, one last question for you, Kehinde, and as it is with all of our guests, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. So from reading your book and from other past research and guests on our show, it it seems that capitalism wouldn't have succeeded without slavery and other low-to-no-cost labor, and liberalism wouldn't have succeeded without violence. So we have uh, an economic system of capitalism that is based on, uh, dependent upon slavery and abuse, and we have a system of liberalism, a political system that is also dependent upon violence. Kehinde, why do we, and I guess I, I should say maybe white people, why do white people only seem good at creating unfair systems of exploitation? <laughs> um, I think it's historical. I think this is part of what I have to understand is, is that racism is embedded into the system. I, I don't know if it's, is, is it impossible. It's not impossible that white people could come up with a system that didn't, that didn't exploit people, that wasn't about violence. But the fact is that over the last 500 years, we have... Europe, Europe generally, white people generally created a system which is built on genocide, slavery, and colonialism, and maintained that system through violence, through genocide, through more genocide, through more racism, and through more violence. And I think there's a by not, and one of the problems is that we don't want to acknowledge that. And by not acknowledging that, and by pretending that you can just tweak things and slightly unpick things and do things somewhat differently, that's why you just keep reproducing and re, basically perpetuating the same problem. That's why you have to go back to the source. You have to understand that the whole system is rooted in racism, and that we need to start again. And I don't know if I don't know if you'll do it, but what I will say is that for, for, for black radicalism, for the black population, that's about saying that we ain't got time to wait. We've got to organize and make sure that the system cannot continue to oppress others and other oppressed people across the globe. Well, we're going to stay in touch with you, Kehinde, because I know that you are working on some new writing, and we'd love to have you back on the show. Again, Kehinde Andrews is author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. And I just want to stress that this is a book that white people should read because black radicalism can be for everybody. It can benefit everybody. It's not just a very exclusive uh, idea. It's something that is very inclusive. So thank you, Kehinde. I really appreciate you being on our show. Thank you. Thank you. Live from lands stolen from the natives, as Kehinde was just pointing out, this is hell. We'll wrap up this week's This is Hell with a moment of truth featuring Jeff Dorchin, and this time Jeff does some racial thinking. Join me tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, for the closing of the second annual This is Hell art show called This is Art, which is happening again tomorrow, September 2nd, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon, Chicago's little India neighborhood. Meet the artists who participated in this year's show and see all their work one last time tomorrow afternoon. Sunday, September 2nd from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the gallery above Carrie's Lounge. Again, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. 
This year's art included Luke Brecken's Wooden Assemblages, Ian Lance's Mixed Media Works, Julie Murphy's Etchings and Drawings, Laddie Odom's Handmade Kites Hanging from the Ceiling, Ron Pollard's We Kill Everything Photography Project, and the pornographic portraiture of Viggy Jiguli, in that they are actually portraits of porn stars. That's tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios, Art Gallery above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India Neighborhood. Check out our event page on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio. The best way for you to get the word out about This Is Hell is to share the entire show or individual interviews or correspondence reports. This Is Hell has a very limited promotional budget, so we want to thank all of our listeners who share the show online and that very loud music going into my head. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly share the show. And uh, let's see, publicly share the show online. Thanks this week goes out to the people who publicly share the show or interviews or correspondence reports this week. Lots more shared anonymously because it's probably a good thing. Smart idea. Thanks this week goes out to Stephen, Patrick, Rich, Nick, Jeffrey, Gorilla Gramophonics, Randell, Jesse, Doug, Jason, Matt, Rob. A ton of you shared our conversation on liberation theology with Lillian Callis Barger, including Tom, Camellia, Susie, Mission Anarchism, Black Rose Book Distro, but the vast majority who shared it did so anonymously, naturally. Also, thanks to sharing to Hegel, Julie, George, Mark, and Onegas. Thanks to all of you for sharing This Is Hell, however you share the show, whether it's through Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud, whatever. If you want to hear your name read on air and simultaneously spread the good word about the evil content of This Is Hell, all you have to do is share This Is Hell. Coming up on this week's show, Jeff does some racial thinking. That, uh, plus uh, I got some people we want to thank for supporting This Is Hell. Maybe we'll get to twist off knowledge. No, we won't. I just threw it in the trash. Of course, what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell? Bringing you bong-hitting journalism since 1996, This Is Hell. Alex, I know you have half handle on. Yeah, sorry. That's why I was playing your music loud. I had to uh, make sure Jeff could hear his theme. Oh, excellent. So I'm assuming you have them online. <laughs> there you go. Sorry, Jeff. Racial thinking. Welcome to the moment of truth, the thirst that is the drink. I was reading a paper by a friend of mine, John Hardigan, a professor who teaches anthropology and sociology at the University of Texas in Austin. In it, he shared this. In my classrooms, I ask students to look around at their peers and try to describe the range of skin tones present. It is quickly very apparent that black and white don't cut it. There's too much variation, and that really what we use race to do is classify people into a small set of categories. His paper is about the value of genetic studies of Neanderthals and how our attempts to distinguish between us and them are becoming more and more fruitless as we learn more about Neanderthals' very human behaviors. The illustrative anecdote about his classroom is a lead-in to a discussion about race being socially constructed, but implications in his paper evoke a world of errors we make in dividing groups in ways that flatter ourselves, whether we're aware of our biases or not. My last moment of truth laid out the case for viewing supporters of Donald Dump as fitting Karl Popper's description of the intolerant, whom those in the tolerant society ought not tolerate. I ended with a tiny bit of irony, I like to think, saying, 
really rub their faces in your decency or something like that. I think such irony was appropriate to a paradoxical premise like not tolerating the intolerant. There is certainly behavior that is not to be tolerated, and some betrayals of rational discourse qualify as intolerable. Some dump supporters seem to rely on bad faith discourse as a way of propping up their bad faith politics and their continued devotion to a demagogue who evinces vile, corrupt, and self-serving behavior on a daily basis. The failing New York Times, which recently posted its most profitable quarter in years, hired a writer of color, Sarah Young, or Jung, who it was discovered had tweeted a large volume of bile against white people over the years. One example was something about having no sympathy for the deaths of white people. Another said she enjoyed being cruel to elderly white men. She's no Harry Kondabolu. They were flat statements, not even couched in wit, not couched in anything except the fact that she was of Korean descent, which for some people wasn't enough couching. Articles damning her and the leftist intolerance were trotted out from the recent past or created spontaneously in response. The most salient arguments were that anti-white rhetoric on the left, especially in academia, where most of these writers' ire is directed, is not only rampant and doctrinaire in a quasi-religious sense, but also serves the elitist project of stigmatizing outgroups who haven't learned to internalize the left's cultish rules. And one of the main outgroups is whites of a lower economic class. Basically, Anti-whiteness is not really anti-whiteness because woke whites, i.e. elite whites, can espouse it with logical consistency in woke culture. Left anti-whiteness is really anti-poor whiteness. It's elitist and serves to keep poor white people as well as speech that would challenge leftist political pieties out of the academy. Education is one of the gateways out of poverty. The left is supposed to want to end poverty. They're hypocrites. There are a few things wrong with this calculation, and the worst is that it is a calculation and not a true concern about upending the economic power structure that keeps poor people poor. Andrew Sullivan, one of the complaining writers, is hardly a socialist or even that interested in redistributing wealth more equitably. The exercise is really just finger-pointing and assertions of hypocrisy meant to tar the left with the brush the left is supposed to be tarring capitalism with. The right, who call the left hypocrites, are the real hypocrites. That doesn't mean the argument lacks validity. That doesn't mean certain left and left academic scenes aren't de facto churches with dogmas of anti-whiteness and anti-maleness. I know firsthand that some are, but the academy is no more monolithic than humans are. I also know the reverse. People fighting against the white and European-centered bias in fields like medieval studies where they're struggling coherently and earnestly against power in academic organizations that seem disingenuously clueless about their exclusion of people of diverse identities, as well as ideas that challenge the white European near monopoly on the narrow definition of what their field can be about. Those legitimately challenging these white patriarchal bodies find themselves dismissed, tarred with the brush of political correctness. Most who've matured out of the hazing backbiting and virtue signaling in any leftish political scene, look on simplistic, arrogant political correctness today with generous pity. That generous pity is, admittedly, patronizing. But it's hard not to be generous to those whose hearts are, at least ostensibly, in the right place. Yet, it's equally difficult not to be patronizing toward unreasonable, self-destructive people. It's that, or take them down a peg. And let me tell you, 
No one but a smug billionaire is higher on their peg than a leftist who knows all the right things to think and say and is ready to tell you what they are at the slightest provocation. It may be hard to admit, it's certainly hard to discuss in any depth with the unreasonable, but the left, like any group of people, has its share of sycophants, egoists, manipulative jerks, conformists, mindless yes-people, self-righteous fools, and those who simply enjoy being mean for personal reasons. The left is just people. And many of us are wrong about many, many things. And we assume we're not wrong because we're on the side of good, you know, the way evangelical Christians do. There are those who will say that this is my white privilege talking, and I'm not one to doubt the many obvious and hidden benefits accruing to me by my being white, so I'll just repeat ideas I've heard many black socialists aver. Class solidarity and critiquing the economic power structures that oppress us all is key to building an effective resistance to creating change. Yes, they are power structures that assuredly favor whites, but not whites alone. Socialists who ignore racism and other strains of systemic and quasi-systemic xenophobia do so at the risk of failing vast numbers of powerless people. It's a historic truth that's been assimilated into current leftist discourse, if not always leftist action, and the socialist commitment to seeking and empowering diversity needs to be continually maintained by all. But leftists who get distracted from the battle against the actually powerful, the massively destructive powerful, as opposed to the coded powerful or the linguistically powerful or the microaggressively powerful, who of course replicate the oppression of their oppressors, and make no mistake, poor white people are oppressed. Leftists who somehow don't believe the patriarchy can be replicated by non-white and non-cis male oppressors risk failing and thereby losing the solidarity of vast numbers of powerless people, and not just white ones. It's necessary for people of color and queerness of all kinds to talk about and act against the oppression they experience every day in white heteronormative society. History shows that otherwise their oppression will be ignored by white heteronormative leftists. But it's equally necessary that the left never allow our focus on the power that comes from control of material wealth to waver. It's time for our species to outgrow the need for abusively unequal distribution of resources. We have to do it. We should have done it ages ago. It's killing vast numbers of people and animals and plants. When the left shrinks the many categories of humans down to us and them, we're also replicating our own oppression. Some of us are subverting it in this way, but if you're not careful, if your subversion is shallow, then you're at worst a problem to your comrades, at best a mere cartoon. Cartoons are great for agitation and propaganda, but most problems in the world require complex thoughts, strategy, and a soupçon of finesse. The fact is, it's fun to be mean, blunt, and stupid. It's hilarious. It's one of the great comic tactics, being mean to yourself and being mean to others. And let's face it, White people are horrible. Even when they're nice, they're horrible, because behind their niceness, or around it, or inside it, whether perceived or actually there, is a brutal imperialist oppressor offering smallpox blankets. Somewhere around, or behind, or inside me, is an inbred, possum-eating, lynching, backwards redneck of every civilized person's deliverance nightmares. When I go to eat Chinese food in Monterey Park, I'm actually forcing the proprietors of Chengdu Taste to build the railroad from the Mississippi to the Pacific. And hey, no one puts a gun to my head in the morning and says, be white today or else. It's my choice. It might be as hard for a white person to be a true ally 
as it is for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. But people are capable of doing difficult things. And even Neanderthals were people. The differences between you and your enemy might not be as great or as many as you might like to think. This has been the moment of truth. Good day! So here's the weirdest quote I heard during my vacation up at the lake this year. I heard somebody say, you know what they're teaching kids in school today? That civility is racist. <laughs> I'm not too sure what school that is, but uh, I would suggest School you. of hard knocks. <laughs> I'd say. That's <laughs> real hard knocks. <laughs> All right, Jeffy, next week we only have a one-hour show, so I'll be talking to you in a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Well, then I need to change my, uh, my answer to the question from hell. Why? Because I, I need to change it because I didn't get a big enough laugh. All right. All right. It's God damn you all to hell. <laughs> That's a good one. All right, Jeffy, until a couple weeks from now. Ciao, baby. Live from the good old U.S. of A., where capitalism is all our pimp. If you want to make certain capitalism doesn't become This Is Hell's pimp, support This Is Hell at thisishell.com. There's now a few ways you can do that by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. One is via Patreon. The other one is just, you know, making a one-time action of support toward This Is Hell, and we'll give you some free gifts. You can find all of those free gifts right now at thisishell.com when you click on support. Thanks this week goes to a lot of people because people want our new gifts of the completely redesigned T-shirt, tote bag, and our brand new enameled tin camping mug, which you can see a picture of me field testing by the bonfire during my summer vacation on our Instagram account at This Is Hell Radio. So I want to thank the people who have supported our show over the last couple of weeks. Thanks to Braden, Khalil, Becky, Ben, Jeffrey, Milda, Matthew, and the committed tithing support of John, Kilter, Adrian, Daniel, Magnificent Me, Brett, and Francis. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this week and in the coming days, weeks, months, and years of the Trump administration. Your support will be needed more than ever. Join me tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, for the closing of the second annual This Is Hell art show called This Is Art, which is happening tomorrow Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Meet the artists who participated in this year's show and see all their work one more time tomorrow afternoon, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the gallery above Carrie's Lounge, again, 2251 West Devon in Chicago. This year's art included Luke Brecken's Wooden Assemblages, Ian Lance's Mixed Media Works, Julie Murphy's Etchings and Drawings, Laddie Odom's hard, or, sorry, Handmade Kites Hanging from the Ceiling, Ron Pollard's We Kill Everything Photography Project, which is fascinating, and the pornographic portraiture of Vicky Jiguli, in that they are portraits of porn stars. That's tomorrow, Sunday, September 2nd, from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios Art Gallery above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's Little India neighborhood. Check out our event page on Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio to get all of the details. If you want to hear This Is Hell over the air on your local radio station, assuming you still have one, and impose our evil content upon your innocent neighbors, email us your local radio station's call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. Again, if you want to hear us on your favorite local radio station, email us the call letters to chuck at thisishell.com. And while you're at it, why don't you email your local station, too, and tell them why your source for anti-social media is This Is Hell. Alex, do we have any idea who's going to be on next week's show? Nope. 
Sweet. It's only going to be an hour long, though, folks. It's abbreviated due to football. We're really hoping that this will be, if not our last, one of our very last preempted shows, abbreviated shows due to football. With the uh, studio almost coming together, and next month we're pretty certain it will be, we are going to be able to broadcast the first hour from that studio, and then the next three, uh, first hour live here on the air on WNUR, and then the next three hours will be at thisishell.com as we'll be broadcasting from our own studio above Carrie's Lounge, and you can see that tomorrow when you come by for the closing of the uh, show This Is Art at Second Story Studios that, again, is above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon here in Chicago. Uh, and then when we come back in a couple of weeks uh, with a full four-hour show, we'll finally have Jeff Dorchin back for another moment of truth. All right, I want to thank Alex and Leo for producing this week's show. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for giving us a moment of truth. Also, thanks to sociologist Kehinde Andrews, author of Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century. Follow Kahinde on Twitter at Kahinde underscore Andrews. That's K-E-H-I-N-D-E underscore Andrews. Thanks to Matt Chrisman and Brendan James. Matt's the host of Chapo Trap House. Brandon is a former producer of the show. They are co-authors with Will Menneker, Felix Biederman, and Virgil Texas of the book The Chapo Guide to Revolution. A Manifesto Against Logic, Facts, and Reason. Find out more about Chapo Trap House at chapotraphouse.com. Thanks to organizer and educator Max Haven, who returned to This Is Hell. This time he was on to talk about his book, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. You can find all of our interviews with Max. We had one in 2016 about the undercommoning, and in 2017 about reactionary authoritarianism. You can find all of those interviews at our website, thisishell.com. You can find out more about Max at MaxHaven.com. That's H-A-I-V-E-N. You can follow him on Twitter at MaxHaven. Also, thanks to our correspondent in Sao Paulo, Brazil, Brian Mir, who is a really amazing contributor to our show. Uh, I really do think that our show, that this is hell, brings you the best coverage of what is actually taking in, taking place in Brazil, even better than what you see in the New York Times. This crappy little media outlet is doing a better job of telling you what's happening in Brazil than the New York friggin' Times. The big news is Brian now has his own weekly web TV show in Brazil for some big lefty news medium called uh, Brazil 24-7, so look that up, as well as where he writes and edits brazilwire.com that's with an s brazilwire.com and this week's hangover cure was from a listener rick who apparently was writing to us from the pierogi fest in whiting indiana his uh, hangover cure this week was polish tripe soup also known as flocky i'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show host chuck mertz I hope to see you all tomorrow, uh, Sunday, September 2nd, for the closing of the second annual This Is Art show, uh, an art show that we've spon- we are now sponsoring once a year during our listener appreciation and anniversary party. We'll have a gallery showing of people who are supporters of the show or listeners of the show every year. Hope to see you for that closing tomorrow from 3 to 6 p.m. at Second Story Studios above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon in Chicago's little India neighborhood. Somebody's alarm is going off. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show host. Check us out on Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio. Uh, there you go.
Check out thisishell.com throughout the week. There's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's radio show. That's by sitting down in the lotus position, turning your palms towards the sky, focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead, and saying these simple words, Everybody is stupid. My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.